Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, a special strike episode uh, on the film Hoffa. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Phil Liskov. And I'm your, I was singing Hoffa, so I forgot to, to do my bit. I'm your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your regular host, a Hoffy hot dog. I just think... Hoffy's like a thing out here, right? That exists I have no idea here? what that is. I have no idea what that is. Well, listen, we all just got an education in either what is a this? thing that exists somewhere or a thing that I think exists and does not. <laughs> so I'm looking this up. It's H-O-F-F-Y. And every time I would see Hoffa, I'd be Where like, a movie about it. I, I have no idea. Okay. But when I saw the ads for this, this, I saw the ads for this when I was a kid. I was like, why'd they make a movie about the hot dog guy? So, um, Oh, Hoffy. Yeah. I'm looking at this. There's a brand of hot dogs, I guess. Sure. Uh, We've all learned. Today... Well, they're at Angel Stadium, Phil. You got to become an Angel. Okay. Stadium. Well, there you go. Uh, with us today, writer, director, producer, Liz Hanna is back to talk with us about her favorite movie, Hoffa. Uh, <laughs> blessed, blessed and honored to come um, this one. I well, here's the thing. I I wanted us to be able to talk about the current predicament that we are in, uh, which is that we are we are all writers on this podcast and we were all on strike, and it felt like there was an opportunity here uh, to talk about what I would argue is probably the most like when you think union leader, you think Jimmy Hoffa, I guess, right? Like, yeah. I, 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 Lindsay Doherty has a Hoffa tattoo on her arm, so. <laughs> yeah. 
so, which is fucking epic. awesome. Yeah. It's, Phil, she's literally the coolest person I've ever seen. Ever seen so, in my life, yeah. She's love. so cool. Phil, yes. I know that yes. you want to talk about the strike and all that. I just really want to talk about the 1992 film Hoffa, directed by Danny both. DeVito, written by David Mamet. So that's yeah. what I'm here for. Well, here's here's the other thing, too. I, Liz and I were talking a little bit very briefly before we got on mic, just about how, like, I'd never seen this film. I knew this film existed. Um, I knew it had sort of like these Oscar aspirations comes out on Christmas Day, you know, David Mamet, big biopic kind of vibe, Jack Nicholson in full sort of like, you know, Oscar mode, quote unquote. But I'd never seen this movie. Um, I just kind of can't believe that this was the the version that they thought did justice to this person. Like, I, I don't know co- that they cared about doing justice to this person. <laughs> also true. Because I would like to read yes, the please. Yeah. Mm-hmm. third line of the Wikipedia mm-hmm. for half of the film. Quote, the story makes no claim to be historically accurate and in fact is largely fictional. <laughs> So we'll just put that out there. Evelyn, there was, you, can I read your text to me? Um, there, yeah, yeah. Time. There, yeah. there was, a, there was a controversy when mm-hmm. Danny DeVito said he thought Jimmy Hoffa Correct. was a hero, Correct. and that shows you like the degree to which union sentiment was in the tank in the nineties. Like Jimmy Hoffa probably he did some things that weren't great. I'll go that far, um, but uh, yeah, it's the just saying a union guy was a hero in nineteen ninety two would have crazy. people in the press being like, hey. Fuck you. Anyway, Phil, please read my text. No, so Emily texted me last night and said, I do miss the era when you could just be like, I'm David Mamet, and I'm pretty sure this guy's life was like this and get a green light. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think that's absolutely true. Like, you're watching this movie. First of all, Emily, I I absolutely agree with you that, like, union sentiment. I, I guess the whole thing with Jimmy Hoffa is clearly he was working with the mafia right and i guess you know and obviously that is not good very bad don't do it but i also kind of feel oh as shit though... i have to make some calls i didn't realize that <laughs> but i, I also have kind to of explain why my back really is thrown out <laughs> <laughs> but i do wonder whether or not like i mean he did it for a greater good it seems which is to empower uh, a group of people that were grossly you know unempowered in this country now, whether or not, you know, he needed to use the mafia to do that is, I mean, obviously, who knows? But, like, does that make him a bad person? I think the question for me also, and, like, I will say I'm not a Jimmy Hoffa expor- expert, nor, like, yeah. an expert in, in the history of labor unions in this country. But I think, like, as I understand it, he never personally profited over Correct. the use of or the relationship with the mob mm-hmm. um, and instead used it to bolster the pension fund and bolster and, and, you know, was it and, and to um, and to, yeah, to bolster the, the pension yeah. fund and, and to provide more stability for the union itself. Mm-hmm. So like. It's a tough, it's kind of, it's a tough question because sure, what he did was like a no good, very bad thing in terms of associating with the mob. But on the other side, he didn't seem to personally profit from it and instead was using it to empower the unempowered. So like it is a very, I also think it's interesting that like 
the only reality that is in this film are like the transcripts from the hearings between him and, and Bobby Kennedy and like Bobby Kennedy, who we think of as sort of a liberal icon who is who he became at a certain point. But what's forgotten is like how he was the right hand man during the McCarthy hearings. He was extremely conservative during that era. And like, I think that shows here. Um, Hey Jones. Um, (laughs) Hi Jones. Hey Jones. Make an appearance. Here she is. Uh, No, I totally agree with you, Liz. Like, there's a part of me as well that's like, it's interesting because at one point deep in the film, he has to show his endorsement of Nixon in order to essentially get out of prison, and he's like, he voted for him, you know, several times previously. So, like, Hoffa also being a Republican, which is also, or at least seems that way. Apparently, he voted Democratic except for Nixon. Apparently, he was just like, I I fucking love Nixon. I think, well, no, I is it that or I actually read that as he was like, I voted for the other guy three times. Look, oh, here's okay. some problems that we're touching upon. One <laughs> is I found this film almost unintelligible. Like I truly, again, yeah. not a yeah. union expert. Mm-hmm. I've said it many times on this podcast and others went to art school. I'm not knocking an art school education. Yeah. I love my art school education, but like I did not study the economics of unions yeah i truly could not follow this fucking movie i was like what year are we in what are they talking about who are they fighting with how long and then they're like he's been my best friend he's like a brother to me we've been together for 40 years i was like 40 years how long has this movie been going on yeah this you know what is interesting is i found myself thinking a lot about another david mamet script as i was watching this which was the untouchables which also has a similar kind of vibe, right? And I would also argue that I think DeVito directs this kind of De Palma-esque in terms of sort of the theatricality of it. I'm, I'm talking more of like the actual cinematography of this movie. Yeah. Uh, but so, I, I, uh, I, we can talk about that in a second. But I'll just say that like the Mammoth script of The Untouchables does a really good job of delineating facts and a timeline and, and crimes and understanding like what exactly we're watching. I had no idea what's going on. Truly, like, I don't understand the sentences that just came out of their mouths. I was like, it was one of those things that I think I I thought I was thinking about Sorkin a lot, actually, during this, because uh, why not? We've been we've been on the podcast for five minutes, so it was time to bring him up. (laughs) But I was thinking about particularly with the West Wing, where I think Mm. one of the great credits of that show is that like you do not have to be a political expert in order to understand what they're talking about and he is always he has this great quote about it at some point where he was talking about he's like as as long as i understood what i was saying then i knew that i could get an audience to understand what what i was saying and it's like you don't have to have a master's degree or a phd in political theory to do that i felt like i needed a phd in economics to understand this fucking movie and that's not fair to an audience like i'm not going to to do that and it's i don't want to feel stupid while i'm watching a movie but i so it was like a weird balance of like i also don't think they understood what they were saying i was not convinced that jack nicholson or danny devito were fully aware of like what was happening in the film correct it was correct I mean, I, the screen, yes, the screenplay ahead, the screenplay is the equivalent of writing your term paper an hour before class and just like yes. turning it in yes. it's very much like david mamet being like I read some things about Jimmy Hoffa in the past and I'm going to just kind of, you know, here's some stuff. What is baffling to me. And again, this is according to Wikipedia is that like 
keeping the script the same was like a key part of getting this movie greenlit. And I'm like a lot of studios were like, we have notes and like everyone, the people who were making the film were like, no, this script is perfect. So like clearly DeVito like read something in this that like he really sparked to, and it just did not translate at all. I assume the like co- the kind of complicated timeline structure is a part of the original script, but the movie makes no effort to delineate <laughs> beyond like, yeah. like DeVito Gray. looks a little bit yeah. older, you know? Yeah. But like it, it, I, yeah. so, but then he looks older also, like in other parts of the movie. That was a thing. Like I've done, I just like with Plainville, we had two different timelines, so we had a mm-hmm. lot of conversations about like how do we delineate, mm-hmm. what does it look like, and blah blah blah. blah. So I I empathize with the difficulty of this mm-hmm. choice, which is a choice also that they've made. Like you <laughs> do not have to do that. So you, if you do that, then you have to make a decision. And I was like, oh, they're old. Okay, cool. That's how mm-hmm. I know it's different. And then, like in the middle of the movie, suddenly they're in the exact same fucking makeup. Except I guess DeVito doesn't have a mustache. And that's like the way I'm supposed to know the difference. Yeah. I hate, I fucking hate using, uh, it does, like I thought I hated using color coding to delineate timelines. But I'm like, oh no, before was like much worse. Like obviously there are plenty of movies that do a great job like godfather 2 is the obvious example of we're doing two timelines here but also like the second timeline has entirely different actors so they're Mm kind of like working with uh with uh with well because the 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 choice here uh for for our listeners is 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 a somewhat fractured narrative i guess which is that we continually return to the diner uh, and if you know anything about Jimmy Hoffa, of which I knew very little, just to be clear, but I did know that like he disappeared from a diner. So like you know, we he's, know, that... you know he's still alive, right? He's yeah, yeah, still yeah, out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh... He's in the negotiating room for SAG right now. <laughs> but I so there's this. Can there's you this... imagine if SAG was like, <laughs> we have a special guest star, <laughs> Jimmy Hoffa? <laughs> it, it's just I it. it I know they think it's creating tension by returning to the scene of the crime, right? And and continually sort of creating this. But they go there too many times and so little is accomplished when they go back to the diner because there's Lots they're just waiting. Calls. Lots of payphone calls. Not and only, waiting. Not only are they just waiting, they talk about waiting. There's an entire scene where they talk about like, so you waiting? Yeah. You waiting? Yep. Still waiting. How much waiting are you going to do? Like, like and they it, waited for six hours. It's crazy. Bizarre. It it's really bizarre strange. Choice. It's it, it, it. I want to give a little context of this movie for our listeners. I this film is a dramatized for myself. Uh, it's a dramatized biography of the infamous American Union boss Jimmy Hoffa, following four decades of his life from his rise as the head of the Teamsters Union to the scandal that led to his downfall. Uh, his subsequent disappearance was allegedly arranged by the mafia. This film opened on Christmas Day, 1992, against infamously A Few Good Men, Aladdin, and Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, The Bodyguard, and of course, The Mighty Ducks. It would go on to make 120, sorry, 100, Jesus Christ. It would go to make $29 million on a $30 million budget. It's got 52% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 59 from audiences. It earned two Academy Award nominations for cinematography and makeup, losing to, losing to A River Runs Through It and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, Nicholson's performance sharply divided critics, uh, with the actor receiving both a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actor and a Razzie nomination for Worst Actor. Danny DeVito also received a Razzie nomination for Worst Director, of which none of these resulted in wins. 
So I was shocked to find that Roger Ebert gave this film three and a half out of four stars. I mean, he's I fuck, he's a fucking mammoth stand. So like, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. this was like a broy like mammothy thing. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Yeah. There are bros out there who are like, you know, rah, rah, we'll do this. I yeah. can we talk about Jack Nicholson's performance? Please, please, please. Yes, yes please. <laughs> By that tone, I feel like we're going to disagree on this one because no, no, no. I think we're all on the same page. I actually think it's pretty good. I actually like watching this. Was here's the only note I had was that I'd seen him do this performance already in The Departed. So I was like watching this, and I was like, oh. So for The Departed, you were like, hang on, hold my beer, (laughs) I'm going to go do something. But I actually like outside of the horrific prosthetics and and like sorry to knock but just were not necessary and didn't look great. I also like always find subtle teeth stuff to be really weird where you're like, if you know an actor so well yep. that then like the slightest adjustment in how they speak or something can become distracting rather than like, Oh, mm-hmm. like, I don't know how Jimmy Hoffa talks or what he looks like. Like it's super unnecessary, but I actually thought in general, it was like pretty fun and like a pretty good, like Jack performance. He showed up is the he thing. He did. And and as I mentioned maybe earlier, it's, maybe it's also brought into stark relief with the other aspects the other of key the performance of this film. Yeah, I he the weird thing is, and I, I kind of alluded to it earlier in the box office, but Nicholson made a big stink out of the fact that Columbia Pictures moved a few good men into the sort of prime Oscar slot against this movie. And he feels as though this movie didn't get a fair shake because of that. Uh, spoiler <laughs> No, like there is no world that if a few good men isn't out that this movie all of a sudden gets all the acclaim. Like that's just not that's not feasible. I actually think maybe it's like you go the other way and that if this movie wasn't out, a few good men would have more acclaim. Right. Uh, he gets a nomination for a few good men, as we all know, for for supporting actor uh, Liz, having obviously been on for our few good men episode and and Emily um, loving that movie. Um, I, you know what? You know what? I keep watching these movies and I'm like, few good men holds up. It does, right? You just keep going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I will. I will say this: a few good men is a substantially better film than Hoffa. So. Uh, <laughs> I, but I, I know we talked to Little Nicholson on our uh, Few Good Men episode, but he, you know, obviously has a smaller role in A Few Good Men. You know, you're I, I don't know where you both land on sort of lead Nicholson, like Nicholson being the movie, right? Like this is a, a one of those situations where because he stopped this stops happening for him. I mean, I guess it doesn't really I mean as good as it gets in about Schmidt. Like he's still something's got to give like he's still Nicholson, right? Like he's still a big actor um he does wolf right after this that's a weird ass movie he's um, fucking good in wolf though he's good that's wolf, fun though. that's a fun yeah yeah but like he's in full nicholson mode at this point and i would argue that like the movies i mentioned after you know you're you're as good as it gets and you're about schmitz like that's more sort of subdued nicholson like he's not chewing scenery like he is in this and wolf no, and if, if you could man go that far as as good as it gets you don't think he's yeah. chewing scenery and as good oh as god gets, i guess he is yeah as right. good as it gets is one of the movie, one yeah. of the biggest performances to win That's the best fair. Actor. and like there's a lot of big fucking performances that have won best actor but it's it's I guess huge. that's fair. I just I guess I don't love that movie and I just it's kind of it's it's in my brain but i don't really think about it much but is that because movie. you think about how to write women and you don't 
consider I remove all like what is it accountability and something or other it's logic logic and accountability Um, also what's that movie saying about mental health but that's neither here nor there Um, uh, nothing good Uh, I feel like it has a very nuanced message about many what? things, including homosexuality. I was going to ah. say, there's there's a lot of things that that movie tries to cover. It's crazy. And I and I do think that's kind of why it was loved in its moment. You know what I mean? Like 97, it's a different world to a certain degree. But like it did feel like everyone's like, this movie is just trying to do so many things. And it's, it's I think not... it is. I think it might be my scent of a woman. It is an incredibly watchable oh, movie. Like that is that it's like. I know if I revisited it, I would be like, oh, what the fuck is this? But at the time, like, it's such a watchable movie. It was a big sure. fucking hit. Like, it yeah. it just is. Yeah, I don't know. You can have I, all of my as good as it gets. Take it all. I, I'll say this. And this was maybe my biggest beef with Hoffa is uh, I know nothing about these characters. Like, I am so complete. Like, this movie doesn't even attempt to give us a motive or a reason for why Jimmy Hoffa is the way he is. I know even less about Danny DeVito's character of Bobby, who I don't know entirely existed. It's like a composite. He's, he's, a, he's a composite Chucky? of a bunch of, yeah. Right. Yeah. He's sort of like sp- kind of based on Chucky. Yeah. But that guy turned Irish, on. Who in the Irishman apparently led him to his death. Yeah. Um, Listen, so... I just, for me, it was very strange coming to this after having seen the Irishman because Al Pacino in that movie is such a force and it's basically just playing Al Pacino. So now I think I now I think Jimmy Hoffa sounded and looked like Al Pacino, which is evidently not that's the fine. case. Yeah. So yeah, that's great. I The Irishman, which is a movie that I don't love. I've only seen once. I didn't I love hate it. it. I, I need to it. watch it again because I there are a lot of people that really love it. People I respect, like you, Emily, who speak of it. I've very seen it one time in a theater. And I think if I had yeah, not you. watched it in a theater, I would not like it that much. And like I'm not I watched so, it negating your in experience. A theater and yeah. didn't like it. No, that's fine. <laughs> plenty of people plenty of people did, but like I needed to be trapped with it. I needed to be stuck in the old man smell to like that movie. So <laughs> Liz, what are your thoughts on the Irishman? I refrain from giving an opinion at this okay. time. Okay. I, I, well, I just, I think I, it's a little sort of like the broy thing for me, which is like, I've seen this movie before. I know like, yeah. you know, I just am like, so it's not even like a knock against the filmmaking or anything. It's just like, sure. I've seen this before, but I do think in contrast to Hoffa and generally every other biopic that's ever been made, I feel like the point of a biopic is like not, or at least for me, like a, a successful biopic is not to just have it be like a chapter in mm-hmm. an instruction manual. Like here is the story yeah. of the, these events. And instead of reading the Wikipedia, here's a $30 million movie we made. That's like the bad version of biopic to me. The good version of biopic is like, here's an empathetic way to look at these characters. Here's a version of mm-hmm. uh, uh, the in, inner life of these characters that you didn't know about. Exactly what you just said, Phil, is like, here's why this person is the way that they are or growth in any kind (laughs) and like this movie decided to not investigate their characters in absolutely any way like the most investigation happens in the first 10 minutes when danny devito like goes from hating jimmy hoffa almost murdering him to blindly being his like right hand man and there is no explanation to how it happens or like it's just like, man, you're cool. Guess I'll fall. Like, you changed a guy's tire. Let's go get it. Like, it's a weird yep. thing. And, like, 
I, I think it's such a true, I having known very little about Jimmy Hoffa <laughs> finishing this movie, I felt like irate for Hoffa stands because I was like, I would be so angry if he was a hero. Like if I was Lindsay Doherty and I had tattooed his, his face on my arm and I'm the president of IATSE and all these things. And this is what's out there about my guy. I'd be fucking pissed. Yeah. Which is why I'm what's, sure they love The Irishman, which is at least a better movie at the very what least. Is, yeah. What's bonkers to me is that, like, I love that we're just being like, this movie I don't really like is better than Hoffa. That's <laughs> 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 this episode. Yeah. Um, I Like, at the time, this movie was greeted as, like, a lot of his family was like, this is great. A lot of, like, Teamsters were like, this is great. A lot, like, it was a lot of people were like, this is a hagiography. Now it feels like the exact opposite. And again, it's, there's nothing to explain it other than sentiment toward labor unions has shifted dramatically in favor of labor unions in the 30 years since this movie yeah. came out. I also, hmm. I don't, I do not ascribe any, uh, uh, adoration towards the notion of like the wife who's there to support the male character which oh, is I'm my favorite on. it's my favorite character in all of but cinema this i never movie, hate that character wow. we don't know he has a wife <laughs> until like 40 minutes into this movie she has a line like i was like who the fuck is that she flirts with another woman first <laughs> like because he has a she has a son unclear then after the next scene he's sitting next to another blonde woman who looks identical to the blonde woman he was just flirting with then we think that woman is dead the woman he was flirting with and then suddenly she's alive and he just has there's like it is a wild 15 minutes not even five minutes of that i mean this goes to like the jumping to things i agree that also like her relationship with danny devito where it's like clearly they have a long-term relationship and they're close there's no there's a moment where he at the end where Hoffa sends his wife out to address the Teamsters. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? Um, madness. Th- there's a moment <laughs> in the beginning of this movie. I guess it's like really the beginning of this movie where Hoffa like jumps into Dan DeVito's cab mm-hmm. in order to convince him to join the Teamsters. And yeah. that is like the inciting incident of this film. Sure. About 15 minutes later, <laughs> Hoffa makes a speech where he's like, we're 1 million members strong. And I was like, I'm sorry. You have one million members? I laughed out loud because I was like, you are trying to describe to me this scrappy union that comes together by like grit and blood and like sweat and tears. And the union leader is fucking jumping in cabs and you have a million people in your union. Like there was just no scope to this film whatsoever mm-hmm. of like understanding what that meant. Mm-hmm. Every union meeting, they were in a room that was like the size of my bedroom. I was just like, what? Like, I mean, not my bedroom's not that big, but like, you know what I mean? It was like a tiny yeah. little box. It was like 200 yeah. people. It There was just no clarity of, of logistics like, of what they're doing, of explaining yeah. to me of like how, by the way, that's a really interesting thing that this this union has a million members and he still goes into cabs and like yeah. does all this. That's an interesting fact that I have no idea, by the way, if it's true, because as we know, they had no interest in the truth, nor do I know if it's an aspect of his personality. Like it's just it, – I... how did they start? They didn't start with a million. Like, <laughs> I think I'm that so like – fascinated by it. My understanding is that the Teamsters existed pre-Hoffa, but they were like kind of a fractious organization. There was a lot of internal fighting. 
and like he came in and like really brought everybody together in a way at a certain point there was like a fight with the afl cio and the teamsters got kicked out of the afl cio um i read i've read a number of things about labor history in the last couple years but like i'm not specifically well versed on hoffa but it definitely is like the teamsters i mean the central tension of any labor organizing story is that labor organizing is about building a collective, but it requires really strong-willed individuals who want to do that work. Because, like, I know if I was the head of the WGA right now, we'd all be fucked. I'd just be like, I'd rather, like, go look at my daughter, you know? Um, the, like, so that is the and the tension within a Hoffa story is like he was such a big personality he was such a charismatic guy he was such a there was a part of him that loved all the attention and like being an individual trying to push for collective action is such a such a like core tension of any story about this like it's you know like norma ray is kind of about that it's a little bit more suited toward this woman who wants who is it in the collective decides she has to become the individual to stand out but like that's that's the union story and this movie is this movie's not interested in that this movie's like oh look here's here's a guy that i've heard about before and maybe he did some things isn't that interesting that's my biggest issue with it ultimately is like i don't know what this movie's thesis statement is like i don't know what it's trying to say i don't i don't i I, i'm not yeah yeah yeah. i I genuinely don't think it has one i think it's like it is the worst version like i'm not saying this is the worst movie ever made but i'm saying like the idea behind it is sort of the worst version of making a fact-based film though as we know not important to them but based on true events is because like it doesn't have a point of telling it other than just like this is a cool guy which also then feels like a disservice to the truth which is he's by the way the conversations we've had in the last 23 minutes are way more interesting than anything that happens in this film Mm -hmm. i think like going to what you're saying emily the thing that i have come to i think understand um just like mood wise and temperature wise of labor unions and the and the leaders within them is that it has to be a completely egoless job, which mm-hmm. then is in really fascinating um, tension just as a human, because we all have egos, even if you are, you know, the, the most magnanimous person in the world, you still have some version of an ego. It may right. not be representative in your work, but it's represented someplace else. And the idea that Hoffa was this larger than life character who clearly had an ego in some way, but had dedicated his entire life to this just soul-sucking, time-sucking, life-sucking endeavor, though it be for the greater good, you per- your personal life is gone because and, and because the sacri- that's the sacrifice you make, which some people may not consider a sacrifice, which is amazing. But like that tension is fascinating. And that tension, I think, with any union is is important and something that has to be so the person in charge has to be self-aware of. Otherwise, it goes down a rabbit hole. But I, that does not exist in this film <laughs> whatsoever. Well, there's, there's also just, you know, I, I, I watched Reds recently for a, for a Patreon episode, a movie, movie I've never seen before. A great movie. Um, and a, a movie that's sort of a memory hold because of how pro-union it is it seems um a movie that sort of i mean notoriously was a big passion project for warren Beatty's, all of that but it's also about the ideology of unions it's about the collective it's about the power of 
you know, of community, of of being, of, of of commonality, and fighting for people that don't have a voice and that are being screwed either by a government or, in the case of this film, corporate America, and. This movie doesn't seem interested in grappling with that either, partially because I think, to your point, Emily, there wasn't much appetite for it. I don't think that that they thought that people were interested in that. So instead, they kind of made this a bit of a crime movie, but kind of not at the same time. And then on top of every Right. Sorry, go ahead. Which you you can do because the mafia is there. And like I said, but I also think this is the least interesting version of the mafia part of this story, which is Absolutely. like, okay, so listen, we're, we're fighting corporate interests. Who do we have to stick up for us? It's the mafia. And like, who's the criminal and who's the, like, this is all really super basic stuff that like is honestly kind of trite and cliche, but like the movie doesn't even try to like grapple with it, which at least would give it like some sort of thematic spine. Well, that's yeah. Sorry. Go, go ahead. Liz. No, I was going to say like, the moment where they also a bizarre cast, John C. Riley, just touching on that. The moment looking the when, same, born that way, apparently. Exactly the same. Uh, the moment when they're like discussing the, as I only understood about four hours later, the loan outs from the pension program when they're hunting, which by the way might be the best scene in the entire movie when Danny DeVito just takes out a handgun and shoots a deer. So good, it's so fucking incredible. I was like, this is the movie I would watch. I am in, but like. Yeah. They're writing on the back of a hunting license the graph of percentages of how the loan out works and all these things. It is unintelligible. It is impossible to comprehend Mm -hmm. either what they're saying, the importance of it, and then later the legality legality of it. it. And why it, which by the way, is like the entire tension of the movie is, is he, did he commit a crime or not? And going to what you're saying emily is like there's something fascinating about needing the mob to do something good and then is the mob being like of course taking advantage because they're making money in some way but like is there also something a little bit like we are we are all in this together against the big bag corporate i mean like there's an interesting like murky gray area to explore here that is not exploited in any way. And my favorite part is when they bring up the hunting license later and they show it in court. I was like, I still fucking don't understand what that means. Like, I, but, oh, you're telling me those are his initials? Couldn't even read them. You know why? Because they're not even clearly shot. Still can't see them. It's in pencil. It's bizarre. It's, it's a bizarre. bizarre choice. What's also bizarre to me, too. I just, that, I want to say, yes, just sure. briefly. That I know enough about guns and enough about deer to know that it appears that DeVito just fucking shoots a deer in the face with a handgun. That would that would that would really struggle to kill the deer. Like the deer (laughs) would just get really mad. Yeah, it's also a buck. Like that's like not a tiny little deer. Big thick skull, huge fucking buck. And he's at a distance. It just I'm 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 calling bullshit on this one aspect of the movie and none of the others. By the way, it's like the one bullshit aspect of the movie that I'm so excited about because so I laughed fun. so hard and it was so amazing. I like they also great t- comic timing for the next part when they're all just staring at the deer and then they go yeah. back to yeah. the unintelligible graph. I was like 10 out of 10. Great. Also, clearly not shot in the woods on a soundstage like you've never seen before. Like, just crazy. It's It's crazy. so soft. I... The thing that I found baffling, one of the things I found baffling about this film, is that if you were to walk down the street and ask people what they know about Jimmy Hoffa, they'd be like, "Uh, we don't know how he died. 
Uh, we don't know where his body is. Like th- th- this, is, the the mystery of Jimmy Hoffa's demise is perhaps one of the most interesting things about the guy, of which they don't explore in this movie. Like I was watching it, thinking to myself, "You have an opportunity here to make a a, a movie about this big question mark in this country." And instead, we're in a fucking diner waiting. Nothing's really happening. Uh, And then they also did something that wasn't even what people even think actually happened, which is that he was not killed on the premises, that this obviously this Danny DeVito character didn't exist. His car was left there. It was not put into the back of a truck. Yeah, that's the best part. His car was there. (laughs) The... uh... And the, the problem I think with like doing a story about how did Hoffa die or whatever, is that like, yeah. there's a, such a narrow range of possibilities. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Like with, with JFK, I mean, obviously it was like Lee Harvey Oswald, but like, there's so many fucking ideas you can come up with and there's right. so much mythology around it. Sure. That you can make a really uh, great Oliver Stone movie that nevertheless erodes the political fabric of the country. Um, the like Hoff, but like Hoffa, like, well, the mob killed him. And like, the question is not like, you know, how or when did it happen? It's just that, you know, he's dead and the mob killed him and they probably burned his body. And it's just like, okay, great. I'm not saying you make a whole meal out no, of for it sure. or a movie out of it, but you got for to do sure. something with it. They yeah, don't have to do it, anything with it. That's well, the there's, cent- no, there's, that's the, yeah, that is the central tension of his life story to the layman. And like, they're doing a version of the Sopranos ending 15 years before the Sopranos mm-hmm. where he's like in a diner and yes. there's a guy who maybe he's going to shoot him, but he's also just trying to use the phone. And it's so boring i think it's david boring. chase saw this and was like i can do this better. i can do better <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> wait that is my favorite pitch for the sopranos is he, he went into hbo and was like so have you seen hoffa <laughs> <laughs> i yeah i i will say that so danny i want to talk about danny devito for a quick second here because danny devito has a fascinating career. And I don't even mean as an actor, he is the penguin in 1992 as well. So there's that, but, uh, and we will obviously talk about that at a later date, but as a director, he has directed a weird array of films. And as a um, producer, I think needs to be included. Also as a, pro- yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk. Yeah. His, his, his producing is, I would argue maybe more interesting than his directing, but uh, throw mama from the train, war of the roses, Hoffa, Matilda, death to smoochie. That's basically his big credits uh, as a director. I'm a big War of the Roses fan. We did an episode on our 89 Patreon. Turns out I was the only one writing for that movie, it seems, on that episode. Um, I think it's a dark, dark comedy. And that's clearly something he enjoys and wants to explore. And I really appreciate that. Um, I don't know why he does this. I will say Matilda is really dark. Yeah. But it's great. But it's really dark. Like, I remember watching that like 10 years ago and be like this is not a kids movie like it's sure. it's sort of supposed it's i mean it's kind of like all rolled doll books also which is like yeah. it's a kids book and then you're like willy wonka actually tried to kill all of the children <laughs> and so it's it's like not you're like yeah. hmm, maybe it's not but i i think like sorry i cut you off but i think there's something interesting yeah. about like how this film in particular sits amongst those well that's that is my big question here which is this film they uh they went out to barry levinson oliver stone and john mctiernan to direct this film before Vito is obviously next obviously next on this list um Danny DeVito does this film, I think, because he thinks this might 
be a chance to get into the Oscar pool of directors that could be quote unquote taken more seriously or something along those lines. Um, Yes, Emily, it looks like you have some. I think, I think at the time that was like them picking him was like, Oh, he's the guy who's going to be like the next Oscar guy. Because Throw Mama from the Train got like an unexpected nomination. War of the Roses had a lot of buzz. It didn't get nominated, but it had a lot of Oscar buzz. Mm -hmm. So like this is the natural progression of his moments arrived. He's going to do this. He's going to make this this movie and and, like win all the Oscars. And, uh, you know, it just it just he just didn't have the juice. I I also just feel like there's a lot of things that aren't working about this film. But part of it is also that Danny DeVito's style Danny DeVito's tone doesn't make sense. Like it's just jarring with this movie, right? Like I think the cinematography in this film is actually really great, completely ill-suited to this movie. Like it doesn't really make any sense with this film, but it looks good. Um, I think that, I I think that actually, I just don't think there's any of Danny DeVito in this film other than the shooting of the deer. Like the thing sure. that we're talking about with War of the Roses is it's yes, like, yes, it's yes, darkly yes. comic. Yeah. Throw Mama from the Chain, same. Matilda, same. Like obviously Death, Death is all about that. Like I, I, there's something <laughs> deeply sort of like rooted in Danny DeVito, it feels, of like struggling between the darker sides and the comedic sides. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think makes him really great, both mm-hmm. as an actor and as a filmmaker. This is not funny at all. There's nothing funny about this movie. It's so self-serious. He as an actor is so self-serious in it. Like he is just so boring to watch because everything is so dramatic. And it just, I think that's actually the problem that I have amongst a few (laughs) of this is that like, there's no lightness in it. There's no levity yeah. except for Jack Nicholson being Jack. Like when he's being Jack and he's being fun, you're like, all right, but nothing else in this movie is doing that. There is a shot. There is a shot where like Danny DeVito is laughing and he throws his head back and it randomly goes into slow motion. <laughs> I was like, what is that? This is weird. And then it echoes in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> now listen, this, this is the thing I have just discovered that I need to bring up because it yeah, feels yeah. important to this podcast. Danny DeVito made a film with William Fickner and Lance Reddick and, and Constance Zimmer. Constance Zimmer plays nurse. It's called St. Sebastian. Survivors in post-apocalyptic Russia after nuclear war. He finished, he completed filming in 2012. Post-production was completed in 2012. And as of December 2019, it has not secured a release date. This movie is apparently finished and just like nobody will release uh. it. Danny DeVito has secretly made a post-apocalyptic movie that stars, like it would be Lance Reddick's final performance, like if it came out. Like also, he's got a bunch Zimmer. of. He does have like some movie called Queen Bee. Oh, sorry. That was a TV pilot that he directed and a movie called Curmudgeons, which came out in 2016 that uh, was a short that he directed and produced. I don't get the impression that like he's all that interested in directing anymore. It, It seems sort of like he's moved past it, perhaps. I don't know. But in terms of some of his producing credits, which you alluded to, Liz, um, Hoffa is his first produced credit, which is interesting. Um, Reality Bites, Pulp Fiction, Get Shorty, Out of Sight, Gattaca, Man on the Moon, Aaron Brockovich. Pretty stellar 
producing credits, like just really throwing his weight around. And I, I guess he was, he also produced garden state, which is interesting. Uh, along came Polly. Um, he did do that movie duplex, which I always forget exists with uh, Ben Stiller and Drew Barrymore. That was, that was, I thought the last movie he directed, but I, that is the last feature he directed. Yeah. yeah. Except um, for this, except for this except post-apocalyptic. For, <laughs> I mean, the thing is yeah. about like, I think it, it's, it gets forgotten because it's kind of so weird that Danny mm-hmm. DeVito became one of sort of like the most prolific independent producers mm-hmm. of the last 40 totally. years. Yep. But like he made Pulp Fiction, Gattaca, yeah. Aaron Brockovich. Like Out we're talking yeah. about yeah. either first time filmmakers or second time filmmakers. Mm-hmm. We're talking about films that I think wouldn't exist without the freedom of a producer sort of being totally. like, you go do your thing and we trust you. Mm-hmm. Like there's some real inspired producing in that in that of, that i think it gets really underrated which is just like you are the right person to do the job and my job is to not get in your way and is to try and help you do that and he like even garden state you know i mean it was a humongous success i i think it's really interesting that that part of his career might be the most successful even though he's well, sunny might be the most successful or one of the most successful things as an done. actor yeah 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 but I like, that, yeah. but I think like as a producing, you're looking yeah. at him as a producer, writer, yep. director, yep. actor. It feels like as a producer, it's sort of totally. undeniable looking at the credits that that's his. That's what he was most successful at, or has been the most successful. Yeah, at. It's, he produced Camp. I love Camp. Yeah. Have you yeah. seen yeah. Camp? Yeah. Uh, it's great. Anna Kendrick and he, Camp. Jersey Films is one of those companies that you know, we're already looking back on, but we'll look back on, on being just incredibly influential and really moving the needle and being incredibly successful. Um, it was a different era, obviously of motion pictures at the time. Um, I, you know, I bring up Sunny just cause I think it is kind of fascinating that, you know, it's always sunny in Philadelphia has a season without Danny DeVito. It's marginally successful. And I really think that DeVito joining the cast for season two is kind of the thing that brings a big spotlight to the movie. People are like, Oh, Danny DeVito's in this show. Um, And it's season 16 or 17 now going strong DeVito, who it does. I do feel like he completely understands what people want from him as an actor, like perfectly understands his role and that he's always going to be this gross little guy it seems like he's just like that's kind of his go-to um and and i really do think that he has fun doing it he seems to be genuinely enjoying having done however many episodes of sunny it's amazing him as the stripper in friends is one of the best cameo appearances of that television show like i forgot during the pandemic like i think everyone we rewatched friends yep and he shows up and you're get it danny like it's just great it's amazing but then you see him in hoffa having sex with women far too young looking and you're just like no 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 there is such a long shot of him making out with a young woman that i had enough time during this shot to be like i'm uncomfortable like it was not great um i also she she looked like his daughter and she's living in a shack on the side of the road like it's just weird. 
there's some weird choices in this movie. I think the yeah. other problem about this movie is like it didn't decide who the protagonist was. Oh, like yeah. the movie is called Hoffa and ostensibly it's supposed to be about Jimmy Hoffa, but like it's sort of about Danny DeVito. Yep. I don't know if it's told through his perspective because we didn't zoom in on his eye and zoom out again. Did a time jump enough times? <laughs> Unclear. Okay, wait. Can we talk about maybe my favorite shot of the entire film? Please. Yeah. Which is like, it's like a low angle shot of of uh jack nicholson on one side on the left and then i don't remember who on the other side because i kind of blacked out but he's like leaning forward talking to somebody Mm -hmm. and then their chairs move away and the camera pushes in and tilts down and suddenly we're in congress having (laughs) at a congressional hearing i was like what (laughs) is happening And then I kind of was like, wait, did we stitch this together? Did we do this? Did they move out of the way? Where was the location? And then 10 minutes ago, man, I was like, I definitely shouldn't be thinking about this in this way for this. So I know that I, that a few minutes ago, uh, praised the cinematography in this film. And I do want to be clear. I do want to be clear that, that Danny DeVito's desire to make everything a transition in this movie like everything is a transition it shapes to other shapes to like it's just transitions on transitions on transitions it's still well shot is the thing like i don't know the wachowski sisters saw this and then they were like we can do this better for speed racer so (laughs) like (laughs) the great the great art of the late 2000s is all inspired by hoffa like i just want to be clear about that everyone saw hoffa and was like i could do better yeah, I mean, obviously, we all have to call David Chase after this and be like, bro, <laughs> tell us the truth. I think, um, I, okay, wait, I, I I have to go back yes. to the congressional hearing really quickly uh-huh, because please. I just remembered a moment where John C. Riley, we follow him in and he's like, I got to tell you something. I got to tell you something. And Jack Nicholson's like, cool, I'm in the middle of a story. Fuck off. We literally never find out what John C. Riley was going to tell him ever. <laughs> Maybe it's it was like about the license of the movie where it's like, what if, you- yeah. What if he's going to say, I'm going to betray you to Bobber? I'm going to turn on you. 12 Robert years, Kennedy. I'm going to betray yeah. you. Um, yeah. I actually don't know what the timeline was because I have un- I'm have i unclear of when that oh, yeah. was. This whole but movie think- takes place over one day, actually. <laughs> Could be, by Could the way. Uh-huh. I think the thing about the cinematography is, sure, I agree. I mean, it's really soft and like feels, it it's very like. Because well, everything is a diopter shot. So like there's always oh, a blurry. Uh, <laughs> but, it's, but it's also like. I think Untouchables is a good reference in terms of like how to do this well. I like Untouchables feels shot to look like films of that era, sort of, or like how we memory wise would think of movies being done in that era. But it still feels contemporary and like well done, and the lines are crisp and clean. Mm -hmm. This is this was just sort of like we want to make everyone look ten years younger, and so we're gonna just blow it out. Yes, and be really far away until we're extremely close on the longest push in of your life, which happens like 12 times throughout the movie. 12 times. It's shot in, in 70 millimeter by Woo. the way. So this well, thing by probably the way, that explains why it's blown out. Cause it's like not yeah. lit. Correctly. So I, I bet on a big screen, it probably looked impressive maybe, but yeah, this, I, I, I want to, in terms of the, the, you really kind of hit on something, Liz of the fact that like, the photography doesn't match the period, right? So it feels oddly theatrical, which is uh, Danny DeVito's want in general. Like he does tend to shoot things very theatrically, but 
again, why he's the wrong guy for this movie is that the whole thing is kind of shot on either stages or with these very sort of theatrical uh, photography. And then the fucking score in this movie is brutal. Like it is so dialed up and so it it literally feels like just a cliche Oscar score of like big swelling. I mean, I literally feel like I've heard that score like a million times while I was listening to it. I was like, it's kind of the untouchable score. It's kind of like this score. It's like, it feels like Brian was like, I think this has been in every trailer that ever existed in the nineties. Like it has that familiarity of it. That does not match this at all. At the other all. thing I wanted to say is that, like, Danny DeVito, clearly not the right person for this movie. I, In his defense, I don't think anyone Anyone's was the right was. person for this movie. Like, this was a bad script yeah. Yeah. and a bad adaptation of a bad script. Yeah. And so, like, what's the – what's sort of that that mantra, which is, like, you can make a – you can make a good movie out of a good script. You can't make a good movie out of a bad script. Yeah, like yeah. that's that's sort of the idea, and that's that's what happens here. Well, there is a, and yes, I an keep al- trying. And then, there is an Oliver Stone version of this movie where he's allowed to do a pass on the script or whatever the case might be, where it just becomes much more of a you know classic '90s, mid '90s Oliver Stone emblematic of America type thing, and he really gets into the nuts and bolts of of unions and all that kind of stuff. Like, by the way, like probably would have been interested in seeing that film from Oliver Stone in 1992, uh, just not this version. Yeah. I also i <laughs> I want to circle back to Jack Nicholson's performance, Please, which yeah. I haven't gotten to weigh in on yet, yeah, but um, the. It's a, it's a very weird performance. I enjoy it. I enjoy it for how, but there's like my favorite shot. Actually, this is a performance choice more than a shot, but DeVito highlights it so often that I'm like, they thought they were doing something is Jack Nicholson will just be standing in a shot and then he'll kind of like bobble a little bit like back and forth. And he looks like a character in the background of a video game cutscene, And you're like, what is, what is that? But he's like ostensibly the focus of the shot. So and that, I just saw that the first time and I was like, I love what you're doing, Jack. I don't know what this is. This is some like you're on some other level. And like 50 years from now, people will learn to appreciate your work in Hoffa. We're not there yet. We're getting you there, know though. Who not there yet. was uh, also auditioned for this role? It was uh, De Niro, right? Well, De Niro and Pacino, because obviously we're at mid 90s, whatever. Kevin Spacey, ladies and gentlemen, as oh. mm. <laughs> Jimmy mm. I I mean would have would have been interesting guys. Uh It's the I feel like we've had a number of movies that like Kevin Spacey yep. auditioned for. Yep. And it's so weird to me. Leaving aside everything we know about him now. It's so weird to me that Hollywood was like this guy's going to pop because like obviously he's a very good actor. I never would have thought he had a star well, quality. He's, so he's this specific. like kind of yeah, he's yeah. this kind of weird stage actor. And you know, then he plays villains for a while, which is like a really like good verbal like, kids niche for is him. sort of yeah. is like his star making role, right? And then yeah. like mm-hmm. that is a weird mm-hmm. that that's also that movie just sort of in general feels like a flash in the pan. Mm-hmm. Everything kind of had to go right for everyone to freak out about that movie and about him and all that. Like he's just sort of yeah. Yeah. It's it's his he had a very strange year in 95. It was a big year for him in the sense that he had Usual Suspects 7 and then there was a third film that I'm drawing a blank on. Is it's um, the, is it The Ref? Uh I think The Ref was before mm-hmm. it. Um forgive I me. Love the ref. I I like The Ref too. I I think um that to your point Emily in 92 
they were looking at this guy and saying like there's something here we know that this is going to be big this guy could be big but like putting him in a room to audition for like these things are just it's just very strange but i want to i want to see what the other 95 movie is forgive me well la confidential Uh, is what 97 that's 97 Mm -hmm. um it is uh outbreak yes <laughs> outbreak yes. seven usual suspects and then in 94 he's got swimming with sharks which was also big then time to kill is 96 la confidential right, is 97 right. you know so yeah it's it's all kind of and then obviously american beauty in 99 but yeah. i think what's i mean going to jack's performance in this and then sort of like kind of everything we're talking about mm-hmm. the oliver stone version it's like it goes to what you guys were talking about before of sort of like the murder and the missing part of and his disappearance being kind of the most interesting pop culturally of what we know about jimmy hoffa there's there's no after he goes missing to make that interesting like that feels like what's missing about that in the sort of jfk essence of this mm-hmm. is jfk is murdered in the first what 20 minutes of that movie and then it's the investigation right. is, <laughs> is yeah like it's that and so then it's the investigation and everything else that's the majority of that film mm-hmm. If you're doing dual timelines, that feels like the more interesting version is like he's missing. Somebody is looking for him and uncovering X throughout the course of it rather than like six hours in a diner talking to Frank Whaley, who's still wearing his costume from Field of Dreams. That it's like it feels like just a weird choice to not have any like there's no conversation even about like the myth of Hoffa, even while he was alive. There's that one moment at the very, very end when he's like, Oh my God, is that really Jimmy Hoffa? And then he spoiler alert, kills him. But like, I like that even feels totally missed is the opportunity to, to explore like both his, the mythology of Hoffa when he was alive and the mythology of Hoffa after he was dead. Like there's something in there that really feels like a disappointing missed opportunity. And going to what you're saying, Phil is like, th- like we really don't, I'm doing a unions podcast at a certain point later this summer. And like, we really don't have a defining film about labor unions in the United States. And I think there's a ton of reasons for it. One is that you say labor unions, generally people fall asleep, but like Hoffa feels sort of like the iconic way of getting into that in an emotional, interesting version. And since we fucked it up so bad, it's like, we don't really have the version, the ability to do that again. You don't think, you don't think Norma Ray is, is iconic. I, I kind of do. I, I think it is, but I mean sort of like more in like a I, I think iconic, so that's not the right word. I think more of in like a global explanation of like what labor sure, sure, unions sure. are in the United States. Like the big that, short of labor unions. Ex- yeah. Truly. Like like yeah. something that can explain I mean the Teamsters are millions of members and they're one of, if not the most powerful union in the industry in, in America, let alone this industry. And I don't think that there is any quick explanation or quick reference to like, this is how it is in the way that there's like, you know what Watergate is? Here you go. You know what the JFK assassination is? Here you go. And again, I'm not saying it has to be a Wikipedia article, but we all attribute a lot of memories and things to those films because they're both well done and they're interesting and we can form our own opinions about things after them. This just... You know, so like I totally agree with you about Norma Rea in like specificity, but I think in like a larger scale of explaining like why did labor unions start in this country? What's it like Newsies is truly like the movie that I can point to on like an origination, an original scale of like, oh, here's how they begun and why they began. And it's like all about this. Well, I think that I'm like 
Yes. I, I now I'm thinking about that. Now I'm thinking about this this question. I kind of feel like Harlan County, USA, but that's a documentary, so people can't like. Right. Honestly, I there's like, honestly, it might be um a Matawan, which like is a, again an indie film. Like, there's no studios are not putting a lot of money into union movies for some reason. Um, so, so weird. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but also, like, I do think part of it is having read a little bit about labor history. There is no single culminating moment you can dramatize in a really successful way. It's always like a bunch of coal miners got killed. And you're like, okay, sure. Well, it's it's interesting because, like, you know, I, I alluded to Reds earlier. And that movie was really illuminating to me because I didn't really understand how unions were painted in this country as communism as communism and socialism by, you know, obviously the, the, uh, the rich people in this country, because they didn't want unions to exist and they didn't want to pay people fairly. Um, they still paint them that way. I know. I know that but that's, yeah, that's kind yeah, of my yeah. thing. Like, I, I think that's, it's fascinating to me that you've got this movie in reds, which takes place basically in the 1800s for lack of a better way of putting it. And you're seeing sort of, back then how russia was perceived and all of that and now flash forward to 2023 and things just haven't really changed that much like the perception of union still feels like is painted in the media as greedy uh is still painted as though we aren't deserving of a a fair shot um corporations are obviously people (laughs) says the supreme court um Uh, you know we we, it's just it's, it's fascinating i do think the thing that's changed um, is the advent of social media Absolutely. and Absolutely. individual individual like bloggers, substacks, etc. Yes. Like the adv- like the the advocacy for labor unions, and like obviously we're all WGA members here, but like the unionization of Starbucks, the unionization of all of these places that Uber. you know ten years ago you would not have thought would be unionizable. Like so much of that is because we have a space where people are talking outside of traditional media channels, and that has been disastrous for the world in many ways but it has also like brought back a lot of ideas that had fallen out of favor and putting heavy air quotes around that in and like but were like still necessary like the people who don't control capital require some way to like make capital respond to them and unions are the best non-violent way to do that although lots of struggles have turned violent though less because of the unions so it is it, it is interesting to see sort of you know the current predicament that we're in uh, as a as a WGA guild um you know I was I moved out here in 2005 I was an assistant at UTA for for many years so as an assistant I saw the 2007 2008 strike and comparing it not not just my my obviously my profession has changed and my perspective has changed but just seeing how social media is so vitally important in terms of uh, this entire thing that we're in right now, um, it, it is it is palpable the difference between those two things. I mean, Deadline as a as a website or whatever was essentially a strike blog that started mm-hmm. back in two thousand and seven, um, and that was ultimately one of the only ways that information was delineated. It was still kind of pre Twitter. It was still sort of in that weird kind of in between space and the fact that now you can go on twitter you can go on whatever social media site and be able to rally people to a location to say like be here at this time is just i mean there's you there's no way to understate how important that is i think it's i think there's both an enormous amount of positives and for me like 
a few extreme ne- negatives with social media being as prominent as it is and as as um ne- as as used as it is with the strike with I mean with WGA strike in particular and mm-hmm. it we have to mention that you know like the DGA just sent um the deal to be ratified to its members yesterday and SAG is in the middle of negotiations. They started their negotiations yesterday with the AMPTP. All of that ends June 30th. With, so we'll Ju- with Jimmy Hoffa present. With Jimmy, with Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa, Hoffa present. The ghost of Jimmy Hoffa. Obviously. Um, and I think like, so having one blog or news source in 2007, 2008 that was disseminating information yep. while unclear of motivations, which I think is fair, like can being connected to the AMPT. This is 2007, so I'm not even going to deal with deadline now. Yeah, so we'll just yeah. deal with it. I, it wasn't even deadline. It was Nikki Fink, specifically yeah. her. So saying like her in 2007, disseminating information was coming from one source. Now, whether or not that source was affiliated or connected or financially or motivated or whatever sure. with with any of the guilds or the producers, or excuse me, the studios, is sort of I'm putting that to the side at this point because there was like a central source of information. Yeah. There is no central source of information now. Mm-hmm. And I think that is bad for everybody. And I think is is a real negative from the guilds, all of them. The fact that none of the guilds have been successful in communicating with any membership or the public in any way is such a glaring issue to me. Yeah. This doesn't change how uh whether their message is right or wrong, what they're asking for is right or wrong. It's that it, the three of us could could literally believe three different things yeah. about what any of the guilds have said. Either they're looking for what the strike rules are, any of those sure. things. There's just no cohesion. So I think that's one. And then social media then amplifies that. And social media, because, yeah. say, the three of us have three different opinions, I go on and then I've rallied 100 people to my opinion. And then suddenly it's like an all out war within the guild of like what we believe and what we don't believe. So I think like there is a a general lack of centrality is problematic sure. because the the thing that I didn't live I mean I was alive but I wasn't working I was in grad school in LA during the 2007-2008 strike which mm-hmm. was great. Um <laughs> being in grad school for filmmaking at that time was just <laughs> you know um really really thrilling. But I think like it's hard. So it's hard. so I don't have necessarily opinion on the difference between that because I was really absent from yeah. the struggles at that time. Looking at the strike now, like union solidarity is for me kind of the only thing that matters at this point because it's the only thing that will win. And I don't mean just the WGA union solidarity. It's SAG solidarity. It's DGA solidarity. And it is understanding that while we are in solidarity with each other. There are also specific negotiations that have to be made for those unions that SAG will be negotiating for the SAG membership and DGA obviously negotiated for the DGA membership. And I I, it, I think it's hard within the milieu and like haze of social media to get to what the point of it all is, which is sure. for everyone to succeed and everyone to win. Mm-hmm. And I heard something very interesting this morning, which is that there is sort of div- of a of a not even i don't think a divide but a distance and understanding of what each of these deals are supposed to be within every membership and between the public which is either a good deal or 
or a or a industry changing deal. And I think those two things are not one in the same. And they may not be things that can happen this round. I hope they can. I would love if they can. And I'm I'm not saying a personal sentiment. I'm just saying from my observation, this is what I've seen is that there's sort of two sides that are united, but are sort of like, we want this and this and nothing less than this is acceptable. I think there's also as if SAG gets involved, if if somehow the DGA membership rejects the deal and DGA gets involved, there's also a really kind of, because it's just been the WGA, there's been like mm-hmm. a strong focus on what we want and need as a union. When SAG gets in there, like like their concerns about AI are very different from our concerns about AI, are very different from the DGA's concerns about AI. Like it's going to get more complicated for the random person in, you know, Schenectady to like mm-hmm. see this and be like, like parse, like the DGA doesn't give a fuck about many rooms except in the abstract. That's very important to us. I'm sure there's something directors are worried about. I'm not even clocking on because I, you know, don't know any directors. Um, actually, I'm close personal friends with Steven Spielberg, but that's beside <laughs> the point. Um, no, <laughs> Liz, you've actually met Steven Spielberg. So. <laughs> That was uh yeah, I can't that's I think, uh, yeah. I, no, but I, I, I don't think you're wrong. I think like in talking about messaging and my little rant, I don't want to be taken as like anything but full support of, of the of all the unions and also of however anyone feels during this time. It's sort of one of those things, it's like it sort of feels like everybody's like, Well, I'm sorry you feel that way, which is the most offensive thing that anybody can say. It's just that mm-hmm. this is how everybody feels. It's really fucking scary. It's been six weeks of strike. And like that's and if you're lucky enough or fortunate enough or have been working long enough to not be financially scared right now, it's only a matter of time before you will be because it's this is this yeah. is the length of a strike and this is what it it's intended to inflict pain, but you have to withstand pain in order to inflict it. And that's the thing that is really fucking terrifying. So I don't want anything I said to either be um, construed that I'm not acknowledging that or aware of that, nor that I support the strike. I literally threw my back out on the strike line yesterday. I like, I mean, like I, I'm, I got laid off in January and I got six months of severance on top of what I was already maternity leave. So that runs out in September. And when the strike started, I was like, I'm fine. I've got this money that's going to keep coming in. And now I'm looking at September and being like, that just keeps getting closer. Like that, that's, uh, um, I, I actually, I have, I think I have sort of a unique perspective on this because I was a journalist in 2007, 2008. So I was covering the strike in like a, I was like tw- in my twenties. So I was doing a really bad job of it. So don't go read those articles, but like in covering it, it was really remarkable how much deadline was the only place that you could get information that seemed at all interested in the WGA's perspective. It was very much, everybody else was very kowtowing to the studios, especially the trades, but also to some degree, like the LA times, um, not my publication, which did perfect journalism covered by a random 20 something who just like was getting her, getting her legs under her. Um, but uh, now I do think you're seeing a lot more, I think because a lot of newsrooms are unionized, I think you're seeing a lot more union sentiments, even if it's in a more quote unquote balanced article, you're seeing a lot more stuff that is like getting the union's perspective, talking about what the unions want. I think there is a generalized sense in 2023 that there wasn't in 2007, 2008, that is like 
corporations, tech companies, venture capitalists have totally fucked everyone in America who's not one of them. And therefore, there is a kind of weird solidarity. Like every time people from my former colleagues at Vox write about the WGA strike, they have to disclose that they're WGA members. They're not involved in the strike because they're working for a journalistic enterprise. But like, yeah, that that changes the the metric quite a bit. But I do agree. I'm still kind of on Twitter because that's the one place I can get like actual information about this. And like, I do just sort of wish there was a a, a fucking Discord server or a Slack or something where you oh, could totally. like trust the I information think- coming out. Sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, the other thing I think that is unifying within this, and you, you mentioned it, Emily, is AI. I do think the mm-hmm. thing that sort of has the has a broader reach than other strikes that have come before, at least within this industry, is that we are now dealing with something that is going to touch every single industry and every single worker. And it's not just a writer's problem or a director's problem or an actor's problem. And I, I think that globalization of this sort of like the way it uniquely affects each of us, it will, just as you said, affect other corporate, other entities. So that I do feel like a sense that I weirdly have of people who understand there's a strike happening, which still there's a number of people who are like a strike. Um, They get that, that there's like, oh, this is coming for all of us. And we can't believe that they wanted to have a annual summit about technology yeah i i was i was out at fox yesterday and two people walked by and were like you're still on strike yeah jesus (laughs) yeah it's i I do think the ai thing feels existential globally in a way that sort of nothing else that we're discussing does i mean i think that i think that residuals affect all three guilds for sure um and and the studios know they're going to have to pay residuals. Like, I don't, I don't get the impression that like they're, they're going to do it slowly and they're, they're obviously going to like drag their feet on it. But like the residuals is not something that I think is ultimately going to be a deal breaker. I just think that this AI thing, which I got to be completely honest when AI was brought up at the first meeting I went to, it was kind of a punchline. Like people were kind of snickering myself included. Like I was just like, really like we're worried about ai and now within the span of like six weeks or two months or whatever it is just people are fucking terrified of this thing as they should be um so it, it is it's very real i do I feel like say, I've become, oh, sorry i was gonna say ahead, i feel please. like i've become like radicalized in my fear of ai over the last month and like Same. i similarly felt like it was something that needed to be dealt with but i honestly there was i was the one that was like there's no way the studios aren't gonna make a deal on that that's so dumb like i never considered it as being a deal breaker and then once realizing it was a deal breaker and then understanding like oh they're already using it and then like sort of educating myself and other people educating me over the last month of like the implications of it, how it affects all three guilds, how it will affect Teamsters, how it will affect IATSE, how it will affect everybody, I think is like, it's like end of world existentialism. Like it is truly yeah. terrifying. And I, th- I, I don't think that. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We, I understood that, and I don't think collectively, at least the majority understood, like, that fear. The, the other thing I want to say is that I also have never in my entire life have had more people in and out of the industry who are not writers talk to me how much they don't think there should be a minimum amount of writers in a writer's room. Like it is the one deal point that literally everyone who's ever apparently watched a television show thinks is bullshit. I like, if you are not a writer, can you not have an opinion on this? Like ever again, I just, you don't, don't, don't have an, I don't come and tell you how many people should work in your office. Like don't have an opinion on it. It's, it's true. Like that to me, and that has become this sticking point of support, weirdly, mm-hmm. of like, well, isn't that an overstep for the guild to tell you that you should have the minimum amount of writers in your writer's room? We're talking about the longevity of writers. Mm-hmm. Like, if that means that there have to be a certain amount of people in a writer's room, I guarantee you the 11 people who wrote shows by themselves last year will be fine with it. That's right. There were only 11 shows well, last that, year. That's the now. crazy thing, too, yes. is how few there are that that yes emily yeah i i did an npr hit at some point i was i was like i they brought me in to talk about the impact of the 2007 2008 strike on reality tv because i wrote an article about it and suddenly everybody wanted to talk to me about that but like it turned out to be like an hour and a half interview that they used 20 minutes of which is par for the course but like in the midst of it this host was like well why are you trying to say and she was like generally i'd say wga sympathetic like very concerned about AI, as I think a lot of journalists are, and I have more to say about AI, but I'm going to continue this point. Um, the uh, but the, yeah, she was very much like, well, why do you, why are you asking for these? And I'm like, we spent 15 minutes with me, like explaining this all to her, and her just being like, but I don't understand. And then like I was like, they're asking for six to twelve people. That's all. And she was like, oh, because she thought it was like they were asking for like 30 people, and it was like, how did that get conveyed to you? Yeah, and that was the point that she was like, well, that sounds fine. <laughs> So yeah, it's, I also I, think like yeah. it's important. And look, I I preface this by saying I'm not on the negotiating committee and I'm not in WGA leadership. So I'm not like breaking any thing here. Uh, as with any negotiations, there's a starting offer and there's a starting ask. So like, I think that's the other thing. But for me, just going to, I mean, going to Hoffa, going to Union Solidarity, going to messaging, it's bewildering to me that this is the thing that so many people are like oh but don't you feel and for me what it really feels like is a is a lack of understanding that by being a union member i have given i've given myself up to the collective agreement i've given myself up to the majority i may have an opinion but I have entrusted the union leadership of the union negotiating committee as we all have as WGA members to negotiate the right best deal for the majority not the minority of people who uh are 
making kajillions of dollars and are, yeah. are not concerned with this at all. It's the not only it's both well, the majority and then it's the future members of the guild. That is what every deal is supposed to be about and is supposed to be founded on. And like the idea that certain deal points in this may or may not affect any of us doesn't matter. And that's for me is sort of the thing that I actually really was mad about in Hoffa was like, how did you get a million members? How did you get disparate groups? How did he get disparate groups to suddenly come together and unite? How do you get all these? Because I'm like, I'm taking notes, motherfucker. I'm like, <laughs> how do we get Twitter people to all agree on something? The movie I kept thinking of watching Hoffa was Milk. Like Milk is not a labor union movie, but it is a movie about a guy that was like sort of unexpected who like brought together a broad coalition of people to achieve his ends who then died in tragic circumstances. And it's a million times better than this because it is specifically about the politics of being a gay man at that point in time and advocating for gay rights, but also being like, well, I also need to like make sure that the streets are clean. I need to like help out at the parks. Like it is like, it is the thing that this movie misses. And I can't believe we just talked about milk in the middle of this. Go ahead. Phil. I, I do. I, I, you guys talking about this, a couple of things came to mind. The first is, you know, I, I have been surprised by being on the picket lines and feeling that sense of community, that yeah. feeling like we're all in this together and that there is a collective fight going on. And that is something that is completely missed in this film. There is, there is no sense of what he's really fighting for. You know, you've got kind of one scene up top where he's talking to a bunch of people at a factory or whatever. And you kind of get the sense of him being like, you, are you, aren't you tired of getting fucked over? And it's like, okay, but like, what is this really about? And then you have this, if I, I don't even really know how to explain it, but this massive fucking riot sequence, which I'm still not clear who's fighting. Don't Who know what. The- Who came and fought them? <laughs> People died? What happened after people died? Who, what, was he president then or did he become president afterwards? Who is the guy that he's like on the pulpit and is also technically president of the Teamsters? I have it's so many madness. questions. And and also, also, you I eat can't... sandwiches around corpses? I'm there's so much happening in there. So, so this so sequence is so expensive. When you think of the amount of extras that they used in this sequence. He's just big. What This is honestly like far and away, like the movie far and away in terms of the amount of people that are crammed into this sequence in 70 millimeter, two groups. And I still don't know who these two groups are. I don't know what they're fighting about. There is bloodshed. There is death and destruction. And I couldn't tell you what any of it has to do with anything. I only bring this up because it's like, that to me is emblematic of the lack of cohesion in terms of like understanding who's fighting and what you're fighting for and the collective, which is literally what a a movie about unions should be about. But I also, this is a question for you, Liz, just in terms of the fact that you have written a movie based on true facts. Um, I cared about the true facts. You cared about the true facts. Mm -hmm. And I do think that sort of how do you, and now admittedly like, you know, Watergate is one thing. And, and, you know, we talked about the insider when you were on the 99 podcast, which again, also true facts. And these, you know, these had sort of, I don't know, touched on people's lives in a different way. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, writing a union movie i put that in quotation marks a movie about unions would be very hard to distill in the same way but this movie doesn't even attempt to do that but like how do you approach a real life thing and make it feel universal as well i think um the trick is 
making it extremely personal to you because i do think like and making it about the characters so we were talking about before like with the post like the pentagon papers are a very like ethereal thing not to (laughs) like or abstract another abstract thing not to mention the fact that like the movie's not about getting the pentagon papers and publishing them it's like they've been published should (laughs) we also publish them and then should we fight for our right to have published them like it's a moral thriller this is not really a like they get the papers very quickly within the in the start of the movie um so like i i think it's also dealing with something that like outside of if you are from that generation or study that generation you don't really understand the implications of the pentagon papers it's not sort of like an off-the-cuff thing of just like oh sure that's when this happened so you are dealing with sort of like here's this abstract event that you don't really understand you kind of heard about it colloquially does anybody care about it and about a war that's been over for 50 years I think the thing for me about that movie was like I very much related to Kay and felt like a very um, deep connection to her sort of coming of age story and and found that to be the thing I could latch on to. And then that was sort of the shape of the movie with the plot being the Pentagon Papers. But so what you said is I think really important in your question about being universal is like I feel like coming of age stories are always universal. I feel like I relate to those stories of sort of struggle of being the underdog of that. Like that comes to me very naturally that I see high school. Um, I think like that is, you know, that I also think I'm not alone in. Like there's a reason there's so many middle school and high school movies made. So the fact that like sort of we snuck a coming of age story in about a woman who's 55, I think is is sort of how you make it universal and and finding your voice, finding your sort of um, your purpose is timeless. And so it, it doesn't really matter. So that for me is kind of the tactic in doing it. I just wrote another um, biopic about Lee Miller, who's a photojournalist in World War II that Mm-hmm. we're in post in right now and that film was honestly like much harder for me to crack and i couldn't crack it for a really really long time because it was sort of like she's an amazing person what's the story other than right. she's an amazing person and she's she led like six different lives and like what is this and and it took really understanding her personal struggles and journey that i found i found i related to and then also like it became about <laughs> ironically telling the truth and like the importance of the truth and that felt very timely to me sort of in the era that we're living in and things like that so i think it's about finding sort of like your personal connection and then the themes that make it universal for everybody so you don't have to have the specific journey that Catherine graham had or lee miller had to feel like those universal themes but i think hoffa fails at in every oh there's no theme in this movie there's no theme there's no nothing and like i'm not a huge stand for like you have to like have a theme before you sit down or you have to do that like i kind of figure it out as i'm going and i think they kind of appear as you go but like there's nothing in this movie that i found any empathetic connection to whatsoever and in in the conversation we're having about unions and solidarity and all of that is like I should have watched this movie right now and been like fuck yous teamsters (laughs) and like I should have been taking notes of like this is how we do it and what you said is so true like I have found the picket lines to be so um, such a sense of community such a sense of solidarity and in general there she is 
Oh, my the goodness. Chat. <laughs> Look at that face. It's amazing. Hi. It's amazing. She's just this got baby is union eyes. strong. She is. She is. But you were saying Oliver this in terms his, of the Oliver wore his Union Strong shirt at the picket line yesterday too. <laughs> I can send you a onesie, Emily, if you need one. There, we oh, that would be WGA. lovely. That would be lovely. Um, but so I think like there is. I was talking to somebody who was a showrunner in 2007 who shut their show down obviously during the strike, and I asked him what he felt the difference was between that strike and this strike, and he's like, I've never felt this union more solidified in its community and in the solidarity of fighting for what is right and fighting for what we should what we should be fighting for on the bargaining table and things like that i would say too on just to piggyback on that just very briefly i do think that one of the good things to come out of social media is that right like (laughs) out of half fun i was like let's see no 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 no. (laughs) out of of this because i do think there's a lot of downsides to social media for sure but i do think in terms of you know, if you're looking for those endorphin hits, you're yeah. going to get them from social media to feel like you're still in this. You and I think? didn't want right. to be a Debbie Downer because I think what you said was totally right, which is like the ability to have people say, hey, we need more people at Universal tomorrow at 5 a.m. Can yeah. you and like that gets retweeted. And in 10 minutes, yeah. there's five people that are going to show up at Universal yeah. at 5 a.m. I and think like, that is something that like collectively just didn't exist. Yeah. Like outside of the WGA, like the the idea that people can spread, oh, this Starbucks unionized, and that spreads a lot more quickly on a Twitter or a, uh, mm-hmm. whatever. And I think that that has helped so much in terms of, isn't that right? Thank you. Um, I actually have a question sort of piggybacking off of yeah. Phil's for all of us, but especially theirs. Do we think that movies about real people have a responsibility to come down on a side or to have a theme or to have a statement on what are real stories might be a better way to put it, on what happened in a way that fictional stories don't? Because I was thinking about Tar, which is a movie that has a lot of the things I don't like about this movie embedded in it, where it doesn't take a firm stand on anything. But I fucking love that movie. But it's also about a fictional person. So I don't have to care about it in the same way. So I'm wondering... Do we think when you're working with reality, you have to have that extra layer of, oh, we're, we're taking a stand? My, my child obviously thinks well, yes. So I, I, I'm going to let you think about that for a quick second, Liz, as, cause I do feel like from my perspective, having not done what you did with the post, I think that, um, there's a there's a respect that has to be there to some degree mm-hmm. about you you are this person lived, right? And this person had, uh, perhaps, Uh, an enormous effect on the world sometimes right and i feel like if that person isn't with us anymore there's family members there's just a respect that has to go with that so i i do feel like naturally speaking if you're going to be putting this person's face up on a giant movie screen you are inevitably making them seem larger than life and i think that you have to be careful with that weapon right like you you are this is going to be a testament to their life in one way or another. Right. And I'm assuming that when you approach the post, you know, these are real people. Um, these are people that you respected and, 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 you know, did amazing things. So I imagine it's less difficult when it's clear that these were good people, if you understand what I mean, as opposed to. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I mean, I mean, I think know. the dropout and the girl from Plainville, although not movies, I think are good sort of examples yes, of that. And, absolutely. And sort of like navigating that. I think it's a really good question. You know, it sort of comes down to like more of an audience anticipation thing than anything else, which is I think like we all want to believe we're the main 
characters in our own movie. Sure. And I think there's a there has to be a reason that you're actually making somebody a main character in a movie. Right. You know, like I think there there has to be a reason behind not just asking an audience member to pay $17 for it, but asking a studio to pay X amount of million dollars to make it like there's, and, and there, in some ways it's, it's, it's difficult in its own right, because I think there's just a general sort of like distaste for films like that. Although I think we all make fun of sort of like what's going to be top 10 on the blacklist this year that Mm -hmm. will, you know, with sort of like, we can all write the log lines and that's not a knock on the blacklist. I appreciate the blacklist. I gave it an enormous amount of things to my career, but there's like of biopics and stuff like that. There's always kind of the joke of like, whoa, what is this? And what is this? Like, Ooh, we're going to do the fly about the Mike Pence fly in his hair, you know, like making things like that. Um, But I think like, there is uh, a bit of a hurdle to overcome in terms of like justifying the existence of, of telling the story of somebody's life or, or, or part of somebody's life. So in that it does feel like it's necessary for a theme to me because I think people, in order for it not to be a Wikipedia article, there does have to be something to connect to. And in fictional films or, or films that are original films that are not based on truth, there's no Wikipedia article. There's nothing. You're going to learn something regardless if nothing happens. In Tar, you're going to go on a character, a unique character's journey that you've never gone on before because you can't Google it. So I think there's there's not a, necessarily a need for the justification of it if you feel that you have gotten something out of it. It's And then there's other – I mean, and then there's – like I just watched Spider-Verse, the new one, which have you guys both seen? I have. I have not. I'm, I'm seeing it with – uh, my wife and daughter next week. Okay. I will just say that there's an amazing parent moment in it that involves looking at pictures on a phone and you will understand. I is literally Gwen, went to see it. What? Is Gwen Stacy trans? I need to know. That's what all, that's what the internet is saying. It's there. I mean, I, I don't know that it's, it's certainly not made clear. Did you? It's yeah. It's yeah. No, yeah. I didn't. I did not have a, I did. I did like that there was a poster on her wall that said "Protect Trans Kids." Like it did yes. feel as though like there was stuff being pretty clear about yeah. that. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. I. I. I th- yeah. Sorry. Sorry. No. 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 no I was just I, the the answer to the question is that like I think that just to cross the bar of necessity of it being in existence, you do have to do that because otherwise, what's the point of making it? Yeah. I. I. I think that. I mean, again, not to keep underlying the things that don't work about this movie, but like, well, it's easier than figuring out the ones that did work. <laughs> it is, but I think that you know, to your to your perhaps what you were alluding to, Emily, in asking the question is, you know, this movie, I don't think knows how it feels about Jimmy Hoffa. Um, that's a good point, and I think that that's very discombobulating as a viewer. Right. Because you just find yourself you want to hold. I mean, listen, you're watching this fucking movie. You want to hold on to something. You want to latch on to something. And there's nothing to hold on to in this movie because, you know, whether or not Jimmy Hoffa's death was a was enigmatic and mysterious. I assume he as a human was not like I assume that there was ways to find out like what motivated him and to give. By some the way, even if he was, that's interesting. Like make an opinion that, sure, that he's also sure. like, you know, sure. an opaque person, but just right. choose something. Something he's, you know, ultimately the only thing that I gleaned from this film was that he wanted to be the president of the Teamsters Union. He got to be that. He was happy about that. He then had that robbed from him. 
and he was not happy about that. And then he died. That's that's really all that I can tell you about Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. I I don't Yeah. I guess it's interesting because like with the dropout and with Plainville in particular, like it was very important for my personal opinions not to be readable in sure. the in those in those shows. Like it felt very important to make a decision for just like sort of truth in as much as we could um, rather than a biased truth in some way. Whereas in, which is a benefit of time. It's just a benefit of having six to eight to 10 to however many hours to explore the story and characters. Whereas in a feature you have, I guess now three and a half hours to do anything you want. Can we stop making three hour movies, please? It's just unnecessary. It's fucking unnecessary. I'm over it. Anyways. I, I think I, yeah. in, in, in the last in that shortened amount of time, it does feel like you need to make choices mm-hmm. to expedite sort of the experience for everybody. And those choices have to be kind of opinions and and you live with them and like they're right or they're wrong. But you have to just make a choice because otherwise you watch Hoffa. Well, but I, I also think, you know, you talk about uh, the dropout and Girl from Plainville, both of which exist uh, deeply moral gray zone characters, right? Yeah. Characters that are uh just not binary right and i think that both of those projects seemed sort of hell-bent on making sure that it was not spoon-feeding you an answer to these questions um and that it needed to you needed you needed to fucking think about this and ruminate on this and spend time inside these characters heads in order to have some semblance of an idea as to why they did what they did this movie you know, theoretically, I guess Hoffa is a morally great character, but it's not really interested in exploring that in any real way. It's just kind of giving bravado and giving sort of, you know, scenery for, for Nicholson to chew on. Um, and, and I get, it's not even like, it's not even a good mammoth script. Like it doesn't even have any really like good, juicy, like mammoth esque moments in it either, which is kind of weird. Um, yeah, please. Emily. I'm going to give credit to Aaron Sorkin, which is a thing. so rare no but there is a certain and i think hoffa is steeped in this david mamet turned into a super reactionary conservative guy as he got older there is a certain kind of straight white guy who sees the nuance in everything because everything has nuance and there are exceptions to everything and you can never say anything's 100 true and kind of like backs himself into the corner of reactionary conservatism which is just like well everything's doomed to fail so we shouldn't try anything and if you're trying to change anything you're fucked like and you could see that in hoffa where he's just constantly trying to be like yeah but this is more complicated this is more complicated this is more nuanced and he ends up like just you just don't understand anything because all you're seeing is like all of these various complications of this guy did some bad things and also, but you thought he was good, but also he did some bad things. And like, it just, there's a moral calculus to it that feels, it feels a little bit like, you know, um, counting very specific sins in like a Catholic way, almost uh-huh. like a mm-hmm. venal, you know? So it, it is. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's uh, I think that they, yeah. It, it, it's you know it's interesting because I was watching this and I did. I was crediting Sorkin with he never actually got there. He does this all the Not time, yet. and yet he seems so to remain within. He seems to remain within his like very weird moderate zone, which like boomer whatever. But yes. like he does, Dad he does kind of stay I there. Think, like I mean, even with Social Network, which you know is arguably his best script, Mark Zuckerberg is sort of categorically a terrible person in the movie, and he doesn't hide that. He's not like trying to make him not look terrible 
that empathizing with him doesn't mean that you sympathize with him empathizing with him and i think the way that sorkin does it in that film is extremely successful in that i can walk away from that movie and be like wow this guy is such a prick and also like how lonely is he and that's really sad and i and that i think is the decision that can be made in these films which is you don't have to say that jimmy hoffa isn't morally gray but you have to make a choice to show the grayness even if you don't want to often offer an opinion on it i also think what hit me which i was surprised about is that at the end of this film i was expecting to see some text that explained oh, yeah. what jimmy hoffa you know accomplished and or what, who he was since who I he didn't was learn anything for how many where he was buried there. Where, but not even like how many union members there are, yeah. what, you know, the strength of the union movement and, and how important he was to that. Nothing. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm just like, what, at the very least, give me three paragraphs of a Wikipedia page at the end that gives me some sense of what I'm supposed to take away from this on a fact basis, right? Like, yeah. this is what he did. And we don't even get that. It's just very strange. There was no purpose to making this film. <laughs> I, I mean, that, I, I mean, I mean, that's true. truly, there was true. no purpose. There was no, like, we want to tell the story of the Teamsters Mm -hmm. and Jimmy Hoffa. There was no, we want to tell the story of Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. We want to tell the interior life of Jimmy Hoffa. There was literally no purpose to this film whatsoever other than a series of events out of order that may or may not have happened to him since it's not truthful. And then he dies. (laughs) In a way that's not at all like how he died. Because he, like, died yeah. In any yeah. way, with a the person one who's thing, not real. The one thing everybody knows about him, and they just like didn't even try. It's so crazy to me to think like I just I, I would love someone to have explained to me why they thought this was the best Jimmy Hoffa movie to make. Right? Like what 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 about this is propulsive, dramatic, interesting to watch? Um, making a movie about unions. I imagine is quite difficult, right? Like it is an amorphous thing to some degree, right? Like it's this big idea that spans so many different types of industries. Like it's just a very hard thing to really wrap your head around. And this movie does a terrible job at it. Um, you know, I, I, I obviously the Irishman isn't interested really in dealing with it all that much either. But I was just sort of thinking to myself as I was watching this, like what even Reds, <laughs> Even Reds, which I think is a great movie, um, is about far more than just unions. Have you seen Reds, Liz? I haven't, but I don't okay. know that I agree that it's that, that it's, I, it actually for me feels weirdly like the easiest fucking thing to make a movie about <laughs> on earth because it is so foreign to most people, which is, uh-huh. it is about selflessness and the greater good. Like that is what it is about. Is okay. that like truly yeah. at the heart, of i mean it's about union organization and unions and obviously about so much else than that and i'm really belittling it by saying it's about one thing but at but at its core emotionally Mm -hmm. being a part of a union is acting both with selfishness because you want to fight for the things that you believe you should have sacrificing with selflessness to realize that it's for the greater good and for the majority and trust and respect for the people that are within your union. That for me is like actually not that hard. I've also become like union radicalized in the last six weeks. So I'm like, not. So, much. <laughs> I'm, I'm, so, but like, I don't think that it's, 
it's actually like an amazing and beautiful story to tell that I'm like really angry doesn't exist for me to just put on and be like, here, guys, this is why unions exist. And this is what's so wonderful about them is like before this, this guy, you know, his car broke, his truck broke down. He lost his insurance and he lost this and he lost this for six weeks. And now look at what's happening. And here's all these things like that for me actually doesn't feel uber complicated. It's the fact that we live in a capitalist society that is like, oh, but your car broke down. That's your fault. Like, did you really have to run over that pothole? Like, <laughs> sure. I, I don't mean to suggest that what you're saying is absolutely true in the sense that it is uh, it's it's an intrinsic thing. Right. Which is it's, yeah. it's it, in theory, it's about fairness. In theory, it's about being able to provide for yourself and to not be screwed over by some sort of giant organization of some sort. Like all of that's. I guess it's sort of what Emily was saying, which is that there isn't kind of a flashpoint. There isn't kind yes. of a historical moment that you can kind of focus in on. And like this movie seemed to be kind of like, well, listen, we're going to have big scenes with lots of extras. We're going to have Jack Nicholson at a podium. We're done. Right. Like that's and and ultimately that's not it. You don't really understand the machinations of of what's going on behind the scenes. And on top of everything else, I would argue, too, that like and the social network proves me wrong negotiations by and large are not the most exciting things to watch so like you do have that too where it's just it's grappling with a lot of stuff i don't think it proves you wrong i think it's right i mean because it's not really those aren't actually we never actually see the negotiations and social network it's more like it's more you know i'm right no you're you're right Right. no i'm wrong i killed a chicken whatever i fed a chicken chicken it's a device for exposition it's a device for exposition and for emotion rather than like but I want this. <laughs> like this scene, this scene, the one, also there's one negotiation scene in the entire film, which is hilarious. But the one negotiation scene in the movie, I, again, didn't understand who was negotiating. Didn't understand who was on the other side of the table. Didn't understand what they wanted. Didn't understand what his power was. Who was hiring him? Was he the president? Was he the lead negotiator? Like there were simple facts of that like mm-hmm. film and that scene that I needed to just be on the same page that were not there. And it was wild. Like it is wild. It is pretty wild to think about how this film fails on a purely like (laughs) structural and just basic screenwriting levels of like care about the characters. They have arcs. We understand what their motivations are. And on a story level, just being like, this is the train and it's going in this direction. It's it's pretty incredible. It's it's a failure on so many levels. But um, I want to rate this film. Uh, oh, boy. Oh boy. Uh, I had not seen this film, as I mentioned earlier. I came into this podcast at like a 45. Like I was I was being kind of, gen- I'm now at a 25. Like I, I, I think this movie is a failure on many, many levels. I think I kind of was giving it some credit for like, Nicholson's performance, and as I mentioned, I kind of don't hate the cinematography, even though it kind of makes no sense. I'm just completely unmotivated. Um, I it is what it is. But uh, what what about you, Liz? Where where did you fall on this before and after this podcast? So I had never seen this movie. I yes. thought it was like uh, people liked this movie before I saw it. Like yes. I came in misunderstanding the cultural mm-hmm. appreciation or lack thereof <laughs> sure. of this film. 
So I, what what we have left out is that I emailed you about you 20 minutes into watching this movie because I was like, am I the dumbest person who has ever lived? Why do I hate everything? Why can I not understand what I'm watching? Yeah, I was like, I'm so dumb. I can't understand anything. And I was like, oh my, and then I started to get really self, like self, Just... um, anxious and and like self-conscious because i was like i'm on the picket lines all the time and like <laughs> do i understand what unions are do i understand what like i just was spiraled mm-hmm. so i did feel better knowing that this was not a cultural <laughs> film i'm gonna give it a 30 okay and i'm gonna give it the extra five for the deer scene <laughs> so good so good excellent excellent it's I, I, for for the record i just want to just for our listeners to understand essentially Danny DeVito fires a gun into lens too, a like a handgun right down the barrel of the lens. We are the deer. I, I believe the sequence <laughs> of shot. I believe the sequence of shots is close up of DeVito. Like there's the uh, yep. uh, Nicholson and whoever are talking close up of DeVito, close up of a deer, close up of DeVito. He raises the gun and starts well, and firing. Then, and then there's like, and then there, wait, before I think there's one like wide shot yes. of yes. him sort of being like, is nobody really going to notice that there's a deer right here? Which, by the way, in that wide shot is neither Danny DeVito nor the deer. Mm-hmm. So there is no sense of location or space mm-hmm. or geography, or geography yeah. which uh-huh. who needs that? So yeah. there you go. Yeah. It is. It's also we're also forgetting that there <laughs> there is a shot of the deer just there. Right. Thinking like, oh, well, I think I'm good. Then DeVito pulls out the gun and then the deer looks towards DeVito like, oh, fuck. <laughs> it's a, it's that, iconic. That is, that is a very good, like, it's a good dark comedy scene because like a deer would not behave that way in real life. But in a dark comedy, a deer absolutely would. By the way, the deer would never come near them in real life. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. guys with guns. Like, they're not coming near It's fucking great. It's great. Uh, so yeah, I mean, what if yeah. that was? What if that was like Bambi's dad? What if that's <laughs> like that? Like Bambi's just happening over in the next, uh, <laughs> the next hill. Uh, so Emily, what is your rating of this film? God, they're gonna make a live action Bambi, aren't they? That's gonna oh, be 100%, uh, 100%. God damn it! hundred percent. God damn it! I'm so mad right now. Um, queer phobia scale. I'm giving this like a like a five or a six. There's yeah. there's quite a few like slurs. Yes. The actual like like queer phobicness of it is actually just kind of like these guys don't like gay people but you know that More that's like, enough yeah. for me um they're yeah they're just like i'm being i'm performing masculinity in a way that is uh, threatening and will involve beating up young emily that's that's really what the queer phobia scale is would i have gotten beat up by these yeah. characters in high school the answer is yes um <laughs> uh i'm gonna give it a 33 and almost all of that is because I find Jack Nicholson's performance fascinating. I don't think it's good, but I find it fascinating. He's dialed into some wavelength that nobody else is, and I'm into it. Whatever movie he's in, I want to go over there, and maybe the deer's there, too. Maybe it's just him and a deer, and they just... You bringing up Nicholson again made me think about something, uh, as, and also like the, the, you know, the sort of... Uh, whatever the the potpourri of characters in this movie because i was thinking about uh bugsy which comes out the previous year that comes out in 91 um also has sort of this like warren Beatty chewing scenery doing kind of crazy things i bring it up just because levinson was offered this film as well and i i I can only assume that one of the reasons he didn't do it is because it's like i did my mafia movie even though people's like or dislike of bugsy is what it is um but i do have you ever phil have you ever seen avalon 
I have. I love Avalon. Yeah. Uh, so fucking good. Such a good movie. Great movie. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I but I think that Levinson has made great movies. Spotty filmography. But like, and we are going to talk toys at some point on this podcast. And that oh, is, yeah. it is going to be something. Um, say that was the only videotape at one of my great grandmother's homes. <laughs> so you watched it a lot as a kid? No, I, no, I did not. <laughs> but I didn't understand the impact of that until I was older. And I was like, this explains a good amount. My Midwest. Oh, that's brethren. interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I think Levitz has a, has a has a bunch of really great films. But uh, the, the Bugsy thing is just interesting to me just in terms of Hollywood sort of at this moment in the early 90s. And you've got like Goodfellas, Bugsy, this to some degree, like how the mafia is kind of portrayed mm-hmm. is just kind of fascinating to me very slick very kind of like um except for goodfellas which is obviously very blue collar and what have you but i i'm just sort of thinking about like these kind of it's armand Asante who plays mm-hmm. the character in this movie mm-hmm. uh who again like he's i like armand Asante as an actor he's not mm-hmm. given much to do in this movie but but even like the portrayal of the mafia in this film is strange to me. Like, I don't even Fruit really know. Sangria is kind of my favorite <laughs> moment at the end. That is one of the most poorly shot scenes in the film. Oh, actually, it's brutal. It's it's poorly shot. It's poorly directed. It's everything yeah. about it is bizarre. But again, this goes to like, like there feels like a Danny DeVito inside each of these scenes trying to come out. It's like they're having this scene, which basically is telling us that he's going to kill uh-huh. Hoffa. Uh-huh. And he pours him this sangria and like the orange slices just plop into the glass super loudly <laughs> and very specifically. And then he hands the glass to DeVito and DeVito's like, okay, I guess I'll drink it. Like the the, <laughs> the orange slices like go to his nose. It's just like there's moments in this where you're just like, what is happening in here? I also it's so funny that you that you latched onto the sangria because I did too because it was mixed so strangely that you <laughs> couldn't not be like why is it plopping like that like i don't this isn't i shouldn't be noticing these details um and and also i would say too you know i know they mentioned this a fair amount but there's a lot of soundstage work in this movie that also makes it feel very unreal so you're just sort of like it's taking you out of it in very strange ways i this movie's baffling this movie's baffling i think you're going to what you're talking though about like the portrayal of the mafia in yeah. this era i mean and then obviously yeah. pretty soon we get to sopranos obviously yes. inspired by Hoffa. Yes, yes. um but <laughs> I, the like for me sort of the touchstone of mafia cinema is the godfather right i think sure. like that's which while it's not really into i guess in the second one he's like really rich and has the property but like the first one is very almost blue collar even though they're yeah. wealthy mm-hmm. like there is a real sense of family and like yeah. the they grow their food there on the farm and like they'll and the wedding is obviously like luxurious but it doesn't feel crazy it just feels like oh this family has money and then the second one is like they live in nevada and they have like all this money and stuff like that but I don't know where I'm going with that, but I think that's like an interesting distinction between those two movies. Absolutely. I mean, it does feel like Hollywood's interpretation of the mafia is one of two things, the Godfather or Goodfellas. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the Godfather mode, then everything is shot and costumed and made to feel very sort of like high end Mm -hmm. and like, 
browns and dark colors and all that kind of stuff or if you're going the goodfellas road then it's like blue color and it's very sort of like you know gunmetal every kind of like looking very sort of like uh which i do think is interesting i I mean it feels as though prior to goodfellas the only mode was godfather Mm -hmm. uh and you feel that in even in this like i feel like all the armand de stuff feels like b-list godfather shit totally Robert Prosky's in this movie. I just yes. wanted to mention that. He's he great. Had He's a good great. time with him. JT Walsh in this movie. He's great. Had a great time with him. He, uh, he was in, of course, the TV show Dark Skies, which this is partially a podcast about. Um, and Did also... Playing golf? Age oh 25 yeah. years from the last time. Yeah. <laughs> like, no one else in the film aged, and suddenly <laughs> JT Walsh was, like, in Caddyshack. And I was right. like, what is happening? Um... Yes, also, please. Kevin Anderson, who plays Bobby Kennedy, is the lead of the TV show Nothing Sacred, which is a one-season uh, show on ABC in the 90s. That is um, one of the great one-season shows. It's on YouTube. Go watch it. also the romantic interest in Sleeping with the Enemy. Obviously. An incredible performance to Brown-Eyed Girl, which he's a, a shout-out. He's a fantastic stage actor, too. Kevin Anderson, come on the this pod. The bi- niche shit you guys are yeah. doing right now. Well, Phil, watch that. Phil... I thought he was pretty good as Bobby Kennedy. I was like, oh, I like this guy. I think he's doing yeah. a good job. And I was like, he's, he's a really, really good actor. actor. Yeah. yeah, he is good. In the, I, I still, I wish someone could explain to me why Jimmy Hoffa decided to pick a fight with the Kennedys. I don't, I don't really know what, again, another thing that's unmotivated in this film, but like it ultimately leads to his downfall in some weird way. That There's I, a I thing think it was about... the other way around. I think Kennedy, I think Bobby oh, okay. picked a fight yeah. with Hoffa okay. and then Hoffa like fought back. I think is like fair he's, enough, he's like stood his ground and was like I'm gonna do that. That makes but sense. But it's also like a weird. By the way, that's another movie I'm really interested in. Is like the yeah. the point when Bobby went from being like a conservative, even kind of still conservative attorney general, to then like a massive social liberal. rights liberal yeah. Yeah. that ended up getting him assassinated. Getting yeah. Like that is. Really, I mean, when you tell people that Bobby Kennedy was McCarthy's right hand man, they're like, "No, he wasn't." You're like, like, "Yes, he was." Yes, he was. I, I would also know, really recommend Don Porter's. Four, I think it's four part documentary about Bobby. It's on Netflix. It's incredible. Oh, that sounds awesome. I, to some extent, I, uh, I've read that. I'll, you know, there's still this this um, ongoing thing on on left in leftist spaces, not all, but like especially ones dominated by white guys. That's like suspicious of identity politics is undercutting. Mm-hmm. Uh, labor politics a lot of that stems from bobby kennedy actually like the, this is this is a theory that i've read i don't know if this is 100 but like bobby kennedy was like not anti-labor but very like push back against labor a lot because again it's that thing where you reach a certain level of like power and someone is like actually this is not good there's nuance and then you like overcorrect. um but he was like very interested in social issues so like i think there is this like dichotomy within him that caused a lot of leftists to you know become suspicious and we're coming out of that now in the 2020s <laughs> 60 years think? later right well it's you know it takes some time i think the other thing that's interesting that's super not touched upon in this film um mm. as we've realized yeah, that's everything. um but like it, going to what you're talking about is and and affects labor unions and i think affects sort of like the long-term conversation about labor unions is the true and real fear of communism that was in this country and was in the world, but like very specifically in this country, which is on one hand, very silly. On the other hand, 
very real like uh, just in terms of like the threat to what that this country was what it meant how being a communist was both weaponized within the soviet union and then weaponized here like two sort of almost combating ideas of how to weaponize them benefited in just obviously the red scare but like that but equating labor unions with communism and socialism is like a really interesting conversation to be had about where the how the how the connection there has then still for 60 years led to this belief that it's going against normalcy like it's it's like the idea of a union it the existence of it in some way is fighting against what is supposed to be happening which is supposed to be you're supposed to have an employer and you'll be employees and it's a direct connection and that's it there's supposed to be a hierarchy. I'm actually reading a book by um, the historian Adam Hochschild called American Midnight, which is about the period that is perhaps the most fascist in American history, which is 1917 to 1921. Mm-hmm. And this is like, we're talking about what's a good labor union movie. And I shouldn't be talking about this because as we know, Phil is the head of programming for the learning channel. So like I'm technically pitching this the problem. Um, the It's still called the learning channel. Um <laughs> But there's this, there's this guy, uh, there's this, this labor union in the 19, in the teens in the 1920s that is, uh, called the International Workers of the World. They were called the Wobblies. And people would get like very, like there was a lot of, uh, angst around them because they were very much like associated with like communist and socialist causes. And also, this is a time when a lot of people of color and women are entering the workforce and that's freaking people out. So like all of this is going into the same stew. There's this FBI agent guy who starts posing as like the head of the IWW and is like very successful, both at undermining it and at like advancing its causes. Anyway, that's the guy they should make a I movie just, about to I'm talk about. I'm, I'm getting this. Oh, you're looking it up? 11 hour yeah. flight with a 15 month old. Oh, it's sure so good. I, yeah. I do want to say though, um, if you haven't seen reds, watch reds uh also you know perhaps a good thing to watch on a plane if you have 11 hours to kill because it is a uh over watch, three hour movie i'm gonna watch 35 minutes of frozen and 22 minutes of moana on a loop for oh, 11 hours. perfect great that's, I, we don't that's like lovely. anything once the songs are done we don't we we tap out and by we also <laughs> oliver yeah. yes i was gonna say also, if you're interested in uh, any of these topics, you can watch the upcoming mini series Wobbly Joe on the Learning Channel. Phil just greenloaded. Thanks, Phil. <laughs> I was going to say that uh, Reds is a great movie because it is kind of distilling what you're talking about a little bit, Liz, in terms of where this all kind of came from mm-hmm. uh, and how communism and unions were labeled as evil here, right? Like this was not about whether or not you believed in fairness or unfairness. If you were a part of this, you were part of trying to destroy America. Um, And the fact that that sentiment still to some degree still exists today is fucking crazy, right? Like, I mean, it's it's just madness, but I mean, I think, and then the, uh, yeah, I mean, we're also living in, the f- probably the new most fascist era in the United States since yes. 1917, mm-hmm. which I think is when talking about the things that have made that created that at that time. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you know, we have Josie's like, thoughts. A, a, we have more people of color in yep. Yep. more positions of power. We have, or, or with platforms, we have, um, the queer community with platforms we have immigrants with platforms it's like suddenly the you know everybody who was in power in 1917 is like but we did great for you 
Yeah. Why do you want to take our power? Why? It's also we've why been we're doing the so pushback. good. Yeah, like the put the pushback is is fear, right? Like it's just it's always fear. fear. Of, it's, it's it's always, always fear. fear. Yeah, I mean, I'm and it's obvious- always yeah. Sorry, go. Ahead. I'm obviously like terrified as as a trans person right now, but like also a lot of this pushback is literally because we have been come be we have become so accepted, yeah. and it's just it's just you know intellectually I know that all things being equal, um you know, ten years from now things will be very different. Emotionally, I'm just like, well, you know, I'm I'm I have to flee the country. <laughs> so no, it's it's I mean, listen, I. I never would have thought that I would feel fear as a Jewish person in 2023, but that's a very real thing. Um, Not that I'm equating these two things, but just, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, just seems, it seems insane to me. And part of this is just because, I mean, obviously the previous administration and all of that, that it came from, but that all comes from the administration previous and a reaction against that. Like this is an incredibly reactionary country. um, And it's easy to light a fire under a lot of these people. um, And it's just a reason for us to push back even harder and to make sure that this stuff, you know, does not, you know, calcify, but it's, it's, it's really scary, but I'll say this, you know, Emily, when we were talking, you know, at the beginning of the strike, we had sort of a conversation on the phone and you were talking about how, pro-union this country has actually become over the last you know dozen however many the most since 65 is the polling it's incredible to watch and that's why a i want to do this episode because i wanted liz to come on and talk about unions and at this incredibly important fulcrum point that it feels like we're at not just as an industry but as a species (laughs) i mean no joke ai is something that's very real that we should be very concerned about um and i'm so thankful that you're willing to do it liz can i do my tight 90 on ai 90 seconds yes please and then we then and then then yeah (laughs) i like it's like the problem with it is AI is a concept yes existentially threatening the current thing the chat gpt the mid journey all these things is like a weird parlor trick that's a it's a really good fucking parlor trick but like it's built atop massive amounts of cheap human labor that's being exploited usually in africa it's like plagiarizing material from other people and putting it together in ways that's hard to detect it can by definition only regenerate that which has already been the thing of course that's very concerning about it is that it gets plausible enough that it you know puts a bunch of people out of work before everybody realizes oh this doesn't actually do anything but in, in function, it's a horse that can count. The horse doesn't understand numbers. You've just trained it to clop its hoof a number of times. This is a, it's a computer that knows what words look like and knows how to put them together, but doesn't have any idea like what they mean. So yeah, I, mean, the, the, I, I really fucking hate that we've dubbed it AI because that ascribes to it an intent that it doesn't have. I hate actually that we've dubbed it generative AI because that mm-hmm. for me is actually, I think, even more dangerous in assuming that it has any sense of um creation it's what you just right. said is it it's not creating anything it's it's a tapestry it's presenting a tapestry of things that have already existed rearranged in a different way to look at them and i and it has no sense of obviously morality or ethics within that i think the thing for me that is um extremely terrifying that outside of the obvious implications it has in terms of jobs, lack thereof, in terms of it, it's 
what it has what we've seen social media do to journalism is what this will continue to do to like the moral and ethical web that this country and the world is trying to just dangle onto which is a promotion of racist homophobic sexist material because it doesn't understand what those things are so there's there's a that's the, the generation of these things as you use the word generate which i think is not completely accurate is a free for all for the proud boys of america a free for all for anyone who wants to have any message out there to get it out there on an enormous platform as quickly as humanly possible or not even humanly, inhumanly possible. And I think the implications of it are so widespread in such a real way that the lack of fear of it for me is like, you guys are fucking out of your minds if you're not afraid of this. Like, I actually mm -hmm. feel like this is a thing that we have to stand up for so I can look my son in the face in 15 years and be like, I tried to stop it because it's yep. truly end of days. And we have of, a chance to stop it is the thing. Like we, we really we do. do. Yeah. And I think it's, it's for me, like in terms of to come down off the mountain a little bit and like, look at it specifically from, let's say just WGA. I know the DGA has AI language in the, in the deal, which I think is look, they didn't have any language in it when they sat down at the negotiating table. So having any language, anything about AI in there, and I have not dug into the 78 page Neither have I. deal memo yet. So, or deal points yet. But if you're looking at it, the biggest thing I think for us to realize is that the cat's out of the bag. There's no putting it away. There's no way for us to say, like, you can't use it because they're going to use it. There's no way to say creators can't use it. Creators are going to use it. Like, there's just there's no version of saying no. There has to be a version of restricting it and of making it a tool rather than a replacement for both workers and sanity and ethics and morality. Like I, it has to be controlled by people. I don't know if anyone's watching class of 09. I've watched everything so far. I will just I, say. I watched the pilot. I have not watched it since. But. Fair. I will. I say don't watch that, television. Are you, you don't own a TV. I'm sure. Like, I don't know. Yeah. There you go. Um, but I, it's AI is like a central point of this mm -hmm. television show, which mm -hmm. I sort of didn't know. And then spoiler alert becomes that this AI is like, you know, it's the same story of all Terminators that they become <laughs> yeah. self like protective and that, uh -huh. you know, like if something is a threat to them, that means the threat to the world. For the first time in watching any of this, I was like, mm, I get it. We're teaching it that. <laughs> Like I was we like, mm, yep, we've taught it that. I think that like, the thing that I find it's the fifth. Sorry, I was like, yeah. it's literally the fifth element when she like watches everything and she's like, why does everybody want to die? And it's war all the time. Like, why is yeah. it the only thing? It's truly, it's one of those things when you like look at AI or you look at any of these things. You're like, well, yeah, this is what we've taught. It's I I I'll I'll just say this and 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 then we need to go live our lives. But I'll just say that um the thing that I find maybe the most. I don't want to say the most depressing, but one of the most depressing is that these studios think that audiences are so dumb, they're not going to notice yeah. rearranged mm -hmm. shit forever. <laughs> like mm -hmm. that is I, like, that's depressing. There's a sin. There is a cynicism in that idea. And like, I think I can hear the people saying, well, people don't notice that. But like, the thing is that even bad junk, 
that gets popular has some sincere core to it. I may not like it. It may not be to my taste. Um, but a show like Yellowstone that a lot of people deride in that fashion is like, it's not to my taste, but like there's a sincerity at the yep. core of that thing that is trying to say something about the state of the world. Similarly with like, I don't know, fucking NCIS or CSI or something. Sure. Yes. They've continued to be generated over and over and over again, but like it, it is trying to say something that I strongly disagree with about like the state of law enforcement or whatever. Sure. It is like, it has an idea. It has an ethos. It has a, a point of view on the world and the shows that don't are the shows that fail. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this all shakes out, but can um, I say one thing in favor of chat GPT? Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, sure. The other night I asked it to generate a list of baby names for a baby boy that had the ethos of a, of a, of an old timey weightlifter with a handlebar mustache did a great job. Then I asked it to generate a list of nicknames for my wife that replicate a sea monster. My wife was there as I was doing this and it did a great job with that. And that's why I now call my wife Krakenet. So <laughs> that's, that's a perfect could, way. Yeah, yeah. I bet we could ask chat GPT to give us a Hoffa script. Oh, it'd great be better idea. than this. It'd be better than this. Uh, Liz, thank you so much for for coming here and talking thank with you. us about Thanks this. For I know me. that I know that you're in pain, so it, it it's it's even you know more. That. Um, you know, I hope that you feel better soon. I'm a um, woman on strike. I'm always in pain, Phil. <laughs> the place I live now. I mean, no, I physical it. pain, not necessarily emotional for sure. But uh, yeah, this, I mean, uh, thank you so so much for coming on, and we can't wait to talk with you about sneakers sometime in the future that's a movie that i'm very emily you've seen sneakers no i have not oh emily you're gonna like sneakers man i'm so worried now (laughs) i you know what i'm anticipating i'm anticipating liking that and toys in it so you've got that yeah so you know great i I, I, I asked chat gpt to generate a jimmy hoffa script it's so bad That's it's perfect. so bad i was the movie hoffa is better than the script i will give oh, hoffa okay. that well, so David Mamet, better than better go. than chad GPT. but um liz we can't wait to talk sneakers with you in the future i hope that you feel better uh okay. and let's all hope that uh that we get a good deal and we can get the fuck out of the strike soon how about yes that? i would love to go back to work uh yeah. so, all right thanks guys thank you so much talk to you soon Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.